in the moment, I, I didn't see it as what it was. I saw it as I'm at fault. I'm a problem. Like, I, I'm sorry to everybody who, you know, is being an asshole to me. Like, this must be my fault. I'm really sorry. And I think part of it is that in our society, we have this need to rank. And whether it's in performance, whether it's in work, whether it's in even relationships, like we always are kind of like, who's, who's higher? What's worse? What's better? And I think when it comes to abuse, you know, we really, really like to kind of do that. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and on this show, I sit down for meaningful conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you so much for showing up this week. I'm very, very, very glad you're here. This week, I have the honor of introducing you to, according to the New York Times, the fastest girl in a generation, Mary Kane. It's true. Mary spent her teen years breaking all sorts of records. Mary was the 2014 World Junior Champion in the 3000 meter, and she is the youngest American track and field athlete ever to represent the U.S. at a world championship meet after competing in the world championships in athletics in Moscow at the age of 17. She was headed for the Olympics and stardom when she joined the greatest track team in the world, and as a result of an abusive coach and system, it nearly ruined her career. Years later, she spoke out about the abuse and soon after that started a nonprofit organization that employs and supports professional female runners so they can achieve their highest athletic goals and helps those same runners serve as core mentors for their youth mentoring program. I loved this conversation so much, and I respect Mary a ton. Hang in there. At the very front of the conversation, at the beginning, we do gush uh, quite a bit about New York City, where we both live. But again, hang in there. We'll get to some incredible stuff in the conversation before long. Before we jump in, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions. Tell me how much you love or hate the show. You can suggest future guests, whatever. I just love hearing from you. That's hello at letsgiveadam.com. And now let's get right into my conversation with the amazing, with the incredible Mary Kane. Let's go. How was your, uh, I watched your interview with, um, with Rich. Yeah. How was that? Good. Was that a fun experience? It was. He's a great interviewer. He's so great. And it was even one of those experiences where I, so I, it was kind of set up through the company I work for, Tracksmith, and the PR team that kind of like connected us yep. sent me the wrong address. So I was oh. an hour late because I was walking around a retirement facility knocking on people's doors. Like, is this guy 80 years <laughs> I old? I was like, what is happening? <laughs> so then I, and I didn't have his number. And so I'm texting my friend, Alexi, who's like super good friends with him. And I'm just like, oh my God. And you get there super flustered. And you're like, I'm so sorry. I've wasted yeah. all of your time. And he's like, no, you're really good. It's yeah. LA. This shit happens. Yes. And, I was like, and it does in LA. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, I appreciate you being so nice about this. <laughs> I have been very late. And I'm a on time, like yes. uh, to be on time is to be late sort Agreed. of a deal. Like I, and you showed up, yeah, 10 minutes or like even in New York, like yep. 
I have been early to everything, even in New York. So you're like, I just got to give myself yeah. an extra, like whatever it says, 15 minutes extra, I'll wait around for a minute. Agreed. It's better, right? But in LA, you cannot control for it. You have, there's no because control. Because you don't know. I've, I've left 30, 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes extra before knowing, okay, some shit's going to happen. I still get there late. Yeah. Because like, you know, I don't like LA. No, I'm not an LA person. I like LA. I yes. like yeah, the yeah. people. Mm -hmm. I like the opportunities mm -hmm. there. It is very similar to New York in that you can get, I mean, hustlers live there. It, people I like, city and everything it is like from a physical landscape. No. Yeah. If I was going to live there, it would have to be like Santa Monica where I could at least feel like this is walkable. I don't need a car. I become an Upper East Side lady who never leaves a 10 block radius kind yes. of a deal. That's yeah. how I could do it. Yeah. You know? you're so used to walking here. Oh my God. How do you get around otherwise? We know? sold, we sold our, so we, we arrived, we moved here, um, May 30. So two, two months ago in, oh, in a wow. few days. Yeah. So yeah, we're, congrats. we're new to here. Yeah. Thank you. And we brought our car. Yeah. Because we're like, let's just give it a shot. We have three mm -hmm. kids. There'll be beach trips. They'll be going away for the weekend. Most of my friends that have kids here, they, uh, they, uh, have a car because they're like you just yeah. need it to get out and i'm like cool we'll we'll give it a shot so we drove the prius in you know and we're moving around every two days to you know for street sweeping that whole thing and i i got a month in all it took was a month yep and i'm like the only time i have sat in this goddamn driver's seat is for this is to move for the street sweeper 100 i haven't wanted to take it anywhere yeah. because i dread parking there yes and like, why am I going to take it to Costco? I, I have to pay $20 <laughs> to park it in the Costco parking lot when I could just call a taxi or yes. an Uber and be back in my house in 10 minutes. Yeah. So a month in, I was visiting my family for 4th of July, first time I'd see them in a year. My mom was like, man, like, I, I'm thinking about getting a car. You're like, here you go. <laughs> Literally, I gave her my car. I was like, back, I looked over my wife. I was like, I'm going to give mom the car. She's like, I don't care, whatever. And so I turned back to my mom. I was like, you want our car? Like, just take it because yeah. I don't want it. And it's a, it's a nice, you know, yeah. very good for for what she was upgrading from. Yeah. And I was I felt so relieved coming back into the city with a yes. rental. Yes. I literally gave it to her, left it with her in North Carolina, <laughs> took a rental back. We took a rental back. And I drove in, dropped it off at the airport, came back to my house. And now I don't have to sit in my car for four hours. You were like a ton hour. lighter. <laughs> I was because I was so used to Mondays and Thursdays. Would go out and sit in the car for two hours, but have to double park it, move it over, yeah. wait there, and then usually the last street I got stuck on, they would they were not respecting most of the streets. Everybody respect the two hour period, but yeah. And then they would all kind of around the same time, about ten minutes before they would yes. start moving over. Everybody move over. Exactly. The cop had already gone by. Street sweeper, we're good. This last street that I was on, as soon as the street sweeper come by. Some, actually, the two times the street sweeper hadn't even come by yet, but the cop had come by to give tickets to the two or three people that were there. And as soon as the cop left, they all moved back over. And I'm like, people, I understand you don't want to lose your spot. Yeah. This is our city we're talking about. Yeah. Let the street sweeper go by. That's because our this street is shit, shit right, right now. now. It's so bad. Yes. At least let this. I could see you going back over once the street sweeper goes by. It was so frustrating. I said, That's I can't do this anymore. So, yeah. I'm either going to get a parking space and spend the four or $500 a month on a parking space yeah. or not have a car. So we, I'm from Westchester. And so I, nine months of the year, cars in my parents' place. And if there's like a big trip, like we have to go to Boston or there's even something like, you know, with, with we have a dog. And so if we're just like, hey, we're, we're going somewhere and it's more of a thing yeah. and we have a car, we have it. 
my parents' cars are both, one of them is older than my youngest sister who's going into her junior year of Amazing. college. So like we're that kind of people. Yep. One's always broken down. They can have mine then if they need it. Yep. Um, but then the three months of the year we'll have it in is like if there's something very specific for work where I'm like, I'm actually going to need to travel every single weekend. Yep. Like we did this beacon pop up. So we've had the car and I've been driving like 90 minutes every weekend to go up there. Yeah. And so you're like, then it makes sense. Spend the money on the spot. Yep. But otherwise I'm like, screw it. I don't, I it, can't deal with it. It's horrible. I mean, I, even if you have, even if the money is not like an issue, right? Which I have it, the money. Which it always is. Cause it, you're always offended by that amount of money. It's true. It's always it's true. An Even issue. if you have so much money um, and you don't know what to spend it on. Yes. Spending it on a parking spot still feels like getting. I almost feel also like usually, and this is some, coming from somebody who grew up in a very wealthy town where it was like, my dad's an anesthesiologist. It was kind of like, oh, yeah like that sort of place and so you know i know those people they're cheap as all hell yeah like they're cheaper than i am cheap like they would never donate to charity <laughs> because they're almost like the the ebenizer scrooges of the world yep. and so to me i'm almost like who ever feels good about this spending, yes you know? it's, it's really tough it's i mean when we started budgeting out i was like okay we have the money but do i want to spend you know yeah. uh four to five thousand dollars a year on a parking spot in no. my in insurance tripled coming into the city. Yeah. So I was paying like 130 a month when we moved from Nashville. Moved here, it was 350. Yep. That's part of the reason I'm also in Westchester because yeah. I can legally say like, this is a Westchester car. Like most of the time I'm driving is not in the city. Yep. And so like, that's part of the reason too, because I'm somebody who I'm like, I can't, I'm not, I'm never going to break a rule, but like you can't, like that affording is just like ridiculous too. Yeah. That's so. me too. I'm the person that can't with integrity do that. After I, I was telling a few friends that one that lives in Chicago and uh, she's amazing, but she was like, she lives in Chicago and her, her car is insured out of her mom's town where she used to yes. live in, yeah. in Virginia, outside of DC, somewhere in Virginia. And I understand why, because it's a huge savings yes. and it doesn't, it doesn't matter at the end of the day yes. where you say your car is from because people drive and they travel and yeah. who cares where it's parked. But I was like, I just can't in good conscience do couldn't, that. I couldn't. I never. Had I can't I, do it. If it was literally here all the time, I, like I'm, I'm treating this like you treat it when people live in two different places. Right. I'm like 90% of the time it's there because usually even if it's in the city, I'm driving to Westchester. Right. So I'm like, why would I? No. So that's like the, that's how I like draw my line where I'm like 90% of the time it's parked in Westchester. <laughs> yeah. That makes total sense. That makes total sense. So let's start with yeah. uh, some family stuff, some background. I always love to yeah. start with like. Who you are, where you're from, who are the who, what, when, where's, and why's of your life. And yeah. you already started. You're from Westchester. Were you born there? Did you guys move there? Because I know that your your Wikipedia says you're from New York, right? Yes. New York City. But that's technically, you know, that's outskirts of New York City. I'm sure a lot of people in Westchester, do they all say I'm from Westchester? Or do some of them say I'm from New York? Uh, so I would usually say, and I, I will kind of like mention this to make it super clear, is when I say I'm from New York, I'm usually first thinking state. Right? Sure, right. And a lot of that's because I was very lucky as a young athlete to travel both nationally and internationally. So if people are like, where are you from? You just say New York. But like the kids from Syracuse were saying that the kids from Long Island, like it didn't matter yep. where you were. We were all from New York. Yep. And then as soon as somebody goes, oh my God, you're from the city. Yeah. That's when I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm from the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> and more because I knew I didn't deserve that sort of street cred. 
Um, you know, we were not. Everybody that's in a few mile radius of here would also agree with you. They'd be like, you don't get that unless you live here for seven, 10, 15, 20 years. Oh, right? yeah. They've I all got their numbers. I, I have um, this kind of longstanding argument with my boyfriend, Jake, where he's lived now in the city for like six to seven years and he's from Minneapolis. And then I grew oh, up nice. in the suburbs my whole life and now have been living in the city for probably like two and a half years. Yeah. And it's kind of the who's more of a New Yorker conversation. And for a while I was like really strong on the like, it's me. But now I'm like, ah, it's kind of hard. Like it depends how you're breaking it down. You know, like if I'm talking to somebody, I maybe like kind of, you know, don't say my H's. So I'll sound like the right person. Yep. Yep. Everybody understands that if you hear me say humid um, yep. or like anything like that. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a tough battle. But. Did you guys growing up, did y'all come into the city a lot or were you kind of stuck out in the suburbs for most of it? Yeah. So our uh, town, Bronxville, New York, is on the Metro North line for yeah. everybody from the area. Yeah. And we're the on the Harlem line, the third stop out of the Bronx. So I actually went into the Bronx a lot, partly for running, but also partly because that's where my uh, mom grew up. She went to Spelman High School, like born and raised in the Bronx. And my dad is from... New Jersey, went to Columbia Medical, still works at the campus there, went to Fordham. And so there was a lot of like kind of going in and out, whether it was for, you know, going to see a play, going to certain functions. Um, but I do always laugh that like Central Park was one of those things I did not really explore until really, maybe, yeah, like junior year, senior year of high school. And it was always funny because I mean, the first year I ran fifth up mile, I was a freshman in college at the time and returning back to run it. And I barely knew where the hell I was. <laughs> that was the moment I realized I'm like, Ooh, you know, when I say New York, I really got to clarify the suburbs. <laughs> so I was born in Rochester, New York upstate. Yep. And my dad is a Guatemalan immigrant. So we moved to Guatemala when I was a kid. And then I came back in my twenties and I, uh, I wanted to move to New York since I was a kid, this New York. The New yep. York we're in. Yep. That I hope to never leave. So I've been wanting to come for forever. Um, but I didn't realize, because up until, uh, I don't know, the past few years, I would just say I was born in New York, mm -hmm. raised in Guatemala. And I, again, would mean the state. Uh, but what I came to understand is that most people were thinking the city. You're from the city. Yes. I'm like, no, there's a whole state. It's a big state. I understand why you'd say that. It is truly one of the best cities in the world, if not the best, at least the best city in this country. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but no, I'm not, not from there. And now I have, uh, do you know the band uh, AJR? Yeah. Okay. So Adam, uh, the older brother, he's a friend of mine and he was on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he's one of these, because they, they, they grew up in a, the Upper East Side. Like they've never left. They've been in the city their whole life. And he's like... You know, everybody has their like, okay, if you're here for seven years, you're in New York or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I understand that's what I would say is like, this is a really hard city to live in. Yeah. If you can make it seven years, you're fucking in. Like you're in. Maybe not as in as the guy who's been here all his life. Totally. But you're in. You're a New Yorker. If you can last seven years here, this city is so great. And it's as friendly Wood says, like, where else would I go? But it's really hard. 
but he he's a purist purist. He's like, if you weren't born here, like if you weren't here when you were in diapers, you're not a New Yorker. And I'm like, that's a bit much, bro. Like, like I understand you want that to be the case, but like this is a transient city. Like yeah. people are the reason New York is the way that it is is because people are here from every country on the planet. Exactly. And it's a beautiful stew of people. So I keep your purism. <laughs> but like when I'm here seven or ten years. I'll be good at calling myself a New Yorker. I think that's super fair. I guess I'm probably like two and a half years in. So we're we're making some progress yes. there. Um, I will say though, too, I think suburbs, it can also be a little bit different, right? Where like Manhattan especially, it's like if you're a purist because you were like born and raised in Manhattan, that feels like more aggressive than being a purist because you were born and raised in like Brooklyn, Queens, 100%. Bronx, Staten Island. Um, because that's almost more, and like, this is not to offend any suburb people or, I mean, not suburb people, but any borough people, yeah. but it's just like, it's different, it is right? Different. Cause like that is a little bit more residential community depending on where you live. Yep. But in New York, it's like, it's, it's always transient. Like that's kind of the idea about it. That's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah. We moved it. So we're in Harlem, as I said earlier, um, we're in a part of the city where, it's people that have been there for forever. Mm -hmm. So like in our apartment building, there are, uh, there are 23 units in the building. No, 23 units in the building. Uh, there are three units with fair skinned people. I'm, I'm Guatemalan. So I'm a little darker, but I'm still, I'll put myself in the white category. Three, three apartments with white people and 20 with black people. And, uh, two of the neighbors on our floor, the fourth floor, had been there. There's the daughter. She's 27, 28 now. And she said she was born in that apartment. So like these people like have been there. Yeah. I'm so excited that we didn't move at first anyway into a place where it was like people are in and out. Mm -hmm. um, we moved into a place where um, we were kind of seeing the not transient part of the city. Like we're seeing the people that have been, that are, though. I mean, to use the Adam Met, like they are the true New Yorkers. Like, yeah. They didn't even grow up in wealth and they've been here their whole lives. Like yeah. they are gritty, gritty as fuck. And they've like, they've made it through a lot of stuff to still be here in that apartment 30 years later. That's one of the really cool things is I think in the city you meet people with so many different stories. And like we actually were able to buy our apartment kind of at the beginning of COVID and we were super lucky to really kind of be able to jump on that opportunity. Yes. And we're a small building, like there's five units and it's cool because every unit is like a different decade of age. Oh, cool. And so it's really fun getting to kind of meet everybody and see like, where did you come from? How did you get in here? And the couple that's been here the longest, I think she bought the apartment before I was born. And so wow. you look at that and you're like, wow, like you've seen this neighborhood change. You've seen it grow. Um, there's been good things, probably bad things. And I just find that to be really special and something where, you know, it's cool to kind of know we're on this journey of probably staying here a very long time. Yeah. That's exciting if you bought. Yeah. That's gotta be a really cool feeling. It was super cool. I definitely will say the experience, especially in New York, like people don't necessarily get this if you're not from here, but the whole co-op buying experience right. is very different than just like home ownership. Right. Because in the scheme of things, normally you just get a mortgage and you're good to go. But with this, it's like you have to go through this whole like board interview process. Yep. 
oh my gosh, we were like the couple that showed up in a suit. I'm wearing heels. When do I ever wear heels? And they were so nice because they were like, oh, if you ever do this again, yeah. you don't need to do don't. that. Just come in. Just, <laughs> Just come, come as you in. are. Exactly. Um, but it was really special and it's been it's been fun. We just kind of celebrated our year um, anniversary. Congrats. Thank you. At the end of July. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes you kind of look around and it it's special to feel like it's even more of a home to us. Um, and I think I have that feeling more strongly because the initial apartment we were living in was kind of my boyfriend's bachelor pad that my dog and I moved in. Well, like, it's our dog. Sure. But it was like over the course of a week, he suddenly had two ladies move in. Yeah. And I think it always just felt a little bit more like totally dreaming of the the forever home or in Nala's case, the forever home. Uh, <laughs> nice. So, yeah. What, uh, Nala's, uh, how old is Nala now? We think like eight and a half. Um, Rescue? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Nice. When we got her, she was six. And you never really know. Nope. Yeah. No. Nope. Rescue's the way to go. Always. We're, we, we had, uh, we rescued a cat 11 years ago. Um, and we just had to put down oh sorry a hundred times more sad for my wife because that was her baby yeah um but once and we can't have a dog so with or without the cat the plan was to get a dog when we got to new york Mm -hmm. but we could we had to take whatever we could get kind of yeah it was one of those things where in may there were still a lot of options but they were dwindling down for sure we're opening up so we literally had to make a decision in 30 minutes we got the we saw the place, but then there was a bidding war and we had to make the call really quickly. Um, so we got a fourth, four story walk up. Mm-hmm. We're like, we're not getting it. We're not bringing a dog into this. Like, do you know how many times we're going to go up and down these stairs every single day? That's us. Really? Yeah. We're third floor. I mean, like fourth, depending if you count that oh, like sure. half walk yep. up, you know? I mean, maybe it's because we're athletes. And I will say there was a part of me that was like, let's find a place with outdoor space. Um, but like, if anything, I think it makes walks better for her because we can't really be lazy, right? True. Because you can't just be True. like pee on the sidewalk. Like there's more of a like, okay, I put clothes on, I put shoes on, we're going. <laughs> yes, I, I get a half sweat coming down here. So yes. I, we, gotta, we gotta do something rather than just like go out and come right back in. That's a, That's a good point. I mean, I think it does, not to say that, we have it harder than you, but like with three kids, we already have many more ups and downs of stairs per day just for everything. Totally. Like grocery shopping's a new thing here yep. where it's like- You bring we, every kid. We could get them delivered, cats. but it's like, I, I've kind of taken, I've always been the grocery shopper and so that's continued here. So it's like three, three times a week from here back to the house, there's that, I don't know where you are on the Upper West Side, but there's that Trader Joe's, we're not the 72nd yep. uh, street. And so I go up there, I get two or three bags, whatever I can hold, take it up and do that three times a week, right? But with, with the kids, they want to go to park twice a day. We usually do one after supper, right before bed. And um, But you're right that maybe it would be, I mean, get that final wearing the dog out for the night kind of thing by that, the, okay, we did the walk. Now we have to go up four steps. Maybe maybe we'll reconsider it. I don't know. Yeah. We'll at least get it. Whenever we get our next spot, when we move out of this one, we'll definitely get a dog, but. Now I don't have an excuse since you guys are on the third and a half floor and you have a dog. Yeah. And I will say, though, I'm not an elevator person. Just weird thing for somebody who lives in the city and plans to be here very long. You know, if you ever in in an elevator with me, you will notice, especially if it's a sketchy elevator, that I'm like a little bit in the corner, a little bit like 
maybe her eyes are pure panic right now. Like I'm holding it together, but like I'd rather not have to take that every day. So I'd rather I walk up ten, like you know, stories than then get an elevator. Yeah. How did you do with one here? Twenty seven so- floors. This was actually this pretty, is a nice one. It's a nice it goes elevator, fast, but it's pretty smooth. Somehow yes. they have like the balance between like this is jetting up super high yep. fast. But you don't ever feel like, oh, my God, like coming off the oh, floor. Oh, no. And I, oh, my God, we went to this one rooftop party once. And I think I was having a panic attack for like the full three hours. Just like sitting in the corner because we brought our dog because we thought, oh, we're young. We're hip. We can handle this. No. Mary could not handle that. <laughs> so I'm just sitting in the corner like, <gasps> people are consuming alcoholic beverages on a roof. This isn't going to end well. <laughs> are you scared of heights then too? So I'm not scared. Like if I was out on a mountain, we're fine. Like yep. totally Plain. chill. Fine. Yeah. yeah. No, plane's totally chill. You know, of course, there's like with both situations, you're still trying to be safe and you have that like natural 100%. level. But I think it's more like the man made like I'm not always a super trusting person. And I'm like, there's some people who built this and I'm just believing that worked out well. Yep. <laughs> I'm the same way. Take me to the top of a mountain. Totally fine. Like if I'm. Yeah. Especially plane. I'm in a plane all the time. And it's like, don't even think about it twice. Two-story balcony, my stomach's in shambles. Yeah. Like, I literally, if I lean over the edge, I'm done. We, you know, we're on the fourth floor, and we have the fire escape to get up to the roof. We're not supposed to be on the roof, but we're the top floor. And totally. So up to the roof. Uh, nobody said no, in other words. Uh, <laughs> they just didn't say yes. So I go up there, and beautiful view, and that's where I smoke some of my cigars and just, like, chill at the end of the day. And I, I mean, literally, it's, I, I mean, I am, like, a frail old lady, just, like, just barely getting up those steps. I mean, I am holding on for dear life. And we're only four stories up. My yes. wife, she goes and sits out there on the step. She sits out there. And I'm like, they could come off the bolt. Like, who's holding the Who says the bolts are going to stay in? This is an old building. She's like, Nick, it's going to be fine. It's still here. She just sits out there and taunts me. And I, going up the stairs, like one, like one story to the roof, I'm done for. Like, every time I'm like, what? Now I got to go down. Down's worse because you're like. Down's so much worse. You're just trusting your body and i'm a professional athlete like you'd think i'd have yeah. that trust but i can't i'll tell my mom she can't listen to this podcast because of what i'm about to say but there were a couple times where we would in our old apartment accidentally leave our keys yeah and you could always get into the building through the restaurant that was below like there was this back way and yeah. we would go up to the roof and we would break in through our window yeah usually my boyfriend did that because i'm scared of heights there yeah. was one time where he was at work. It was just me and Nal. I walked up. I tied her leash onto like our door handle, went up, did the did the drop down. And oh, my gosh, there was a couple moments there where I'm like, we're never allowed to do this again. We need to give somebody a second key because this is so dangerous. Yeah. How many stories up were you in that place? Um, I think so. We were East Village on St. Mark's. It was probably only like six at the top we were actually in the same like landing which is why we kind of knew we could handle that like three and a half um but yeah probably from the top it was six but it just had a different like the fire escapes there were just you know your east village fire escape yeah. you know not not quite the same level like now we have a balcony and it just feels so solid yeah you know you're like this is good i am fully secure here um, but those fire escapes were not that. <laughs> no, I will never, I don't care how new or cool or anything it is. You don't trust those. No. You could, I mean, one little trip and you're done but, for. Yeah. Yeah. There's, the, like the railing is not even, it's literally 
uh, half inch metal bar that you're just again. Yeah. If you trip on anything, you're what, what do you? I don't know. I don't know. I'm really selling New York right now, guys. But I think <laughs> no, we're just not we're just not selling uh, uh, buildings where you could die from going out on the fire escape. New York's yeah, the best place in the world, exactly. And I think there's also something to be said that like beyond just the like oh tall buildings, I don't like elevators, whatever. I think there's also something where I do love walk ups because you're like somebody lived here for a, yeah f- 150 years ago. Right. Like this thing has lasted. Um, like I just find that to be beautiful. And I think, you know, new developments have their place, but not necessarily in my heart. I totally agree. The character, uh, that a bunch of my friends live in the city all over and they have different kinds of places. Some like very new, nice ones. And then some, some that are still nice, but like older, yeah. like, you're, like you're describing and hands down every single time, put me in the old one, mm-hmm. put me in the one that creaks the stairs when you're going, yeah. up them. put me in the one where. They've definitely had to patch up that wall a few times, you know, <laughs> yeah. because it's like a hundred years old. Put me in the one where someone was living here, you know, through like pre-war or, you know, post-war, like a long time ago. Yeah. Not the one that was built half-heartedly, you know, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, that I'm paying way too much money for. Yeah. You know? No. Give me those places all day long. A hundred percent. And I think there's just something about like just having history. Um you know, kind of having character, something that's unique. Uh, I just find that is what makes New York so special is our history. The, the you know, ability to kind of look back on things and know that we're like a combination of like the past, present and future. And, and like, I don't know, there's just something really powerful about that. Uh, so you've been here two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the impetus for moving here? Just because you could and finally wanted to move in? Yeah, I would say it was a mix of a few things where I, you know, have since I was young, always wanted to move to New York. Um, And my like much younger self, we'll call it like middle school, early high school, um, had always wanted to go more like the medical school route. Sure. Um, My dad's a doctor. He works at Columbia. And in a lot of ways, that was always the dream. And if I could do the like super clean Columbia, like med residency fellowship never leave I probably would have been thrilled um but yeah I think just like growing up in the area is not always the dream yeah um I think I've always been somebody who I'm like if I'm not going to live in New York I would either rather live in an international city yep. because I think in the U.S. very few cities are truly urban like we yeah. are I'd say like Chicago is the closest yep um in terms of just like the literal infrastructure but then if I'm not going to do that, I'd rather be like on a mountain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is the last city. So I said, I moved back to the States when I was 21 and, um, every single day until moving to New York, every single day since moving here, there's been this like nagging in me to like leave the country. Like I've never Mm -hmm. felt at home for one moment since coming back. Mm -hmm. I always want, like, I, you know, had very formidable years, like, you know, 11, 12 to 21. Like those are big years where you're like, prepubescence into puberty and you're figuring yourself out who you are what you believe all that stuff i grew up in this amazing diverse super dangerous like third world country and then i traveled on my own for six years all over the world and i just have never felt comfortable here nothing mm-hmm. against the u.s i'm just i'm not a pay i mean i'm i I own nothing with an american flag on it like i'm just not the like american american you know mm-hmm. guy and so i've been wanting to leave and leave and we've tried to leave a few times this is the only city i love chicago we live south of Seattle for four years. I love, there's great cities here. New York is literally the only place 
that will keep me here. Like, I might stay here for the rest of my life. Yeah. And the reason is because the world comes to here. Yes. So, yes, I will still do international travel. I will still long to be in other places in, mm -hmm. in kind of that, like, wanderlusty kind of way. But this is the only place that can become home here in the U.S. Yeah. And I've been to all the other places. I Like, I've been to all the other cities. They're all great. L.A. is great. We tried to move to L.A. because I had some opportunities out there. I just couldn't pull the trigger. I was just yeah. like, this... It's not going to, I'm going to be sick and tired of it. Like I have been sick and tired of Minneapolis. We lived there for four years. Mm, Minneapolis, mm -hmm. Tacoma, Nashville. Like I just, I get sick of all these places so quickly. Yeah. And this is the place that I don't think that's going to happen. In. I don't think it is either. And I think, you know, part of it is that I've always been like, I want to live somewhere that's just so like breathtaking. Yeah. And that either is like, it's beautiful because I am in a mountain town and I can walk out my door and it's heaven. Yeah. Or I want it to be like breathtaking because of like the people, the fast pace, the environment, the opportunities. Um, and I just, I like New York in that, <laughs> this is going to almost sound very childish what I'm about to say, but as an adult, it's so easy to have friends and it's so easy mm. to have a life that's fulfilled by many different kind of like pieces of yourself. Yeah. And I, I think- you know, as somebody who grew up in like a small town where everybody knows everybody, you know, it's nice to know that I can be Mary the athlete here, but I can also be Mary the like person who loves kind of going on like nature walks in Central Park, or I can go to a comedy show or a, you know, theatrical experience. I <laughs> live near this place that's done like felting classes that I can take, like things that just you wouldn't expect. Yep. Um, I don't have to pigeonhole myself yeah. because if I'm walking down the block, you know, we have so many friends who are within like a 10 block radius of us. You can just text them and say like, hey, walk out your door, meet up. Yep. Nobody's going to have to have the designated driver drive them yep. home nope. on a Saturday night nope. if they hung out with us at the comedy cellar. Like there's almost so much opportunity to just be with people. Yep. And I'm personally somebody who's not, as I've gotten older, I've realized that like I like love social interaction, but I don't think I'm actually an extrovert. Like I think I'm somebody who really, really does well, like at the end of the night, shutting down, reading, kind of like having my alone time. And I think if I did not live in New York, it would be so easy for me to have that be 24 hours a day Sure. <laughs> versus almost this like kind of forced yep. like opportunity yep. Yep. to keep being out there. The, the, I totally agree. The, the people thing is interesting. Here, here's what I, to, just to add on to what you said, like nobody gives a shit about you here in, yes. in, in the way that like, obviously you can find people that like 100%. love you and appreciate you, but like marry this, like, you know, this, the, the fastest girl in the generation, like all the stuff you've been able to do, like nobody cares about that. Yes. You're just Mary. I saw this video, you know, people, obviously a lot of celebrities live here. And like Seth Meyers walked by people like dining. And all they did was say, hey, Seth Meyers. Yeah. Like nobody jumped up to go like touch the hem of his garment. No. Like nobody cares about you. And if somebody is fawning all over you as a celebrity, it's a tourist. It's a tourist. Like, always. New Yorkers don't care that you're this famous whoever. Yes. So so it it's kind it's a very humbling place to live. I because love that there you are said so that. many people in a small, you know, area. Like you could be anybody and nobody cares about you. That's yes. why celebrities can take the the subway here. Yes. Because they're just going to sit there. 
And again, some tourists might be like, oh my God, that's John Krasinski. Boom. And they yeah. take a video. But like, nobody cares that nobody John cares. Krasinski's on the train. I love that you said that because I think how I've always described it is there's an anonymity to it. Yeah. I always butcher that word. But I think, you know, in in the running world, it's super small. There's like three sure, people yeah. who follow it. There's like three people who are good. Yeah. Like, you know, they're going to find you, right? And and running at the same time, despite being the small world, is incredibly international. Like we have a massive fandom in every country in the world. So no matter where you go, you're going to find runners and you're going to find people who care about running. And I think, you know, it's been interesting for me because after coming out with my New York Times piece, in a ridiculous way, I'm probably one of the most well-known runners in the world. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people within the running world will ask me like, you know, is it weird being famous? And every time I laugh because I'm like, yeah, do I get recognized almost like every time I ever run? Of course. Yeah. But it's in that kind of like, you know, you're running through Central Park and somebody's like, love your work, Mary. Yeah. And you're like, oh, thanks. I made my day. Like super, super chill. Yeah. Um, And I think it's funny because when I travel and also none of this is to like discourage people from coming over. Like it's always super nice and I really appreciate it. Yeah. But the last time I was in LA, my boyfriend was dying because I got recognized so many times. Really? And it was a complete, you know, when I travel, I do, but it was totally different. Yeah. Like in New York, it's like somebody just comes over and it's like, Hey, thank yeah. you for being you. Like, yep. you know, thanks for representing our city. Bye. In LA, it's more like you get the stare. Yeah. You get the like stare. eye contact. That's stare. like, yeah. Yeah. And then you're kind of looking like, oh, I don't know what I like. I know what's happening, but they don't know if they know yet what's happening. Yeah. And then you kind of have the, you know, interaction and everything. And it's always super nice. But it's it's different. And yep. it does almost feel like that would be something that could get to your head easier. And I don't want that because, again, three people run and there are three people everybody knows. <laughs> and so I, it, it, it feels like there's a reason that certain celebrities live in LA and yes. certain live here. I agree. I don't know if there's a hundred percent or I don't know if the overlap is as I just described it, but I would say that if, if, if we were to name the top 10, like love attention, yes. Megalomaniacally driven sort of, you know, just, they love the attention. 100%. They live in LA. All of them. All of, all them. of them do. Cause they love what happens when they go, go out. out. Exactly. And here it just seemed like the, 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 certain people that I know here that are mid to very famous, like they, they don't care. Yep. They go to their spot. Again, somebody in line at the coffee shop might recognize them. Nothing's going to happen. They get their coffee, they go. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think it attracts different kinds of people too. I agree. The people that feed off of it, you go to LA, the people that are like, I want to stay away from it, or I'd rather just like live yes. and come here. And I think there's something to be said that one thing that's really, really special about New York is that there's so many industries that thrive here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you could be a, a famous runner, which like 99% of the population is like, that's a, that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. You could be a famous magician. You could be a famous ballerina. You could be a famous like insert whatever you can possibly doctor, like pick something. And so, you know, if somebody who we all publicly know is super famous is online to get a coffee, well, maybe the five people in line behind them kind of have their own thing that they're super so well known for so true. and are kind of looking at them and are just like, ah, why would I, why would I, like, I know Jake Gyllenhaal used to take these like running classes. I would host at this studio called Mile High Run Club in the city. 
And every time he came in, like, I never, I was never going to say anything yeah. to him because I'm like, why would I, like, why would yeah. I do that? To Don't you? ruin the experience for no. Jake. Like, he's coming here and he's probably just dying inside for someone not to notice him. Exactly. So why ruin that? Especially and, when you're going to be sweating and running and, yeah, you very know, vulnerable thing that you're doing. Very vulnerable thing that you're doing. And so I think in those moments, it's like, I have a lot of, and again, completely different level, but I do empathize. And I'm like, if I were you right now, I'd be so focused on my workout and I'm going to treat you like I'm going to treat every other person in this room. Yeah. Um, because I also think there's something to be said that most ways that people garner like the big fame isn't necessarily because they're really doing anything that great. Right. Right. Like, right. Right. It's often the people who you're like, oh my God, you're the doctor that discovered that very specific gene that has saved like people's lives. Right. We, I just said a super vague thing and there's probably people who can say like, yeah, that's me. I have no idea what their names are. And yeah. I like medical stuff. I yeah. follow these sort of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that is where you just kind of can be grounded and say like, fame doesn't really mean anything. It's more, I think the only meaning, at least in my life, about like notoriety or media and all that sort of stuff is like, how can I use it to help people? You know, because outside of that, it's kind of like, you know, my younger self who dreamed of being a doctor, like that hasn't happened yet. And I don't know if it ever will. And so how can I find altruism in a industry that people tend to look at as very selfish? I love that. I mean, that's a big that's a, a, a big idea that you just presented, because, you know, people like that on this show, I mostly still have conversations with people that no one's ever heard about. Yeah. That was the original intent. Yep. Uh, you know, I've had other people on that are very famous, both because I think they're doing something good. Totally. But also, you know, they they bring in the different kind of people to like look at what I'm doing. And and I've had people that are like, why do you have any famous people at all? Like they should be do they should be doing that. You know, they've gotten all this fame and this acclaim. They should be doing something. And I'm like, yes, okay, fine. I'll give you that. That, you know, Priyanka Chopra Jonas sure as hell better be doing something with all of the acclaim and fame and stuff that she, that life has granted her because it's not that she works harder than other people. She probably works very fucking hard. Totally. A lot of people work very fucking hard. The people that clean this building yeah. work very fucking hard. Exactly. And they make 825 an hour, maybe, if they're lucky. Yeah. So, yes, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have like well-known people on here because they should be doing it. But on the other hand, it's like, no, they're actually, they're not giving in. Yeah. To what society and culture tells them to do, which is like, you made it. Now fucking like live it up. Like yeah. go buy the yacht, do your thing. Like just, it's, it's just live a good life. Yes. Not that they don't do that as well. But they're also saying, no, 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 no. Like I've been given a lot. This Christian principle of like, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Like you've been given a lot. You don't really deserve any of that. Not any more than Joe and Sally over there. So you're lucky. Call it lucky. Call it a blessing. You got lucky in life. So- yeah, I want to talk to people that are famous and 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 have still figured out a way of giving back and doing good. Yeah. Not in a PR slimy kind of way, which is like, oh, my PR agent told me I had to do this yes. because it looks good. No, it's like a, they really want to do it. Yes. You know? I think what you're almost saying in essence is that if every single insert wealth, fame, status person was already doing all the good things, you almost wouldn't need to celebrate the moments where somebody said, hey, I'm not going to live that lifestyle that everybody expects of me. I'm going to try to go out of my way to do really cool things. 
And it's almost unfortunate that we're in that position. But I think society trains us to value ourselves based on our work and value ourselves based on how other people look at us. And if you financially are well off and if you have a level of notoriety, society has kind of taught you like you've done, like that's the goal. That's what you're trying to do. And there's nothing else in the goal. Um, And I think, you know, for me, at least as an individual, and then also something I hope I can help impart into society is that like, if you want to be the most selfish person in the whole entire world, I mean, you, you, you have to rely on other people. You have to work with other people. You have to live with other people. And so at the end of the day, like, if I can help other people, isn't that going to help me? Like, if you want to flip it on its head and kind of look at it in this like super cynical perspective, like it does, you know, and that's not how I actually live my life or look at it. But if somebody is out there, like why, how's this going to help me? It a hundred percent is. Yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to people. I don't know if on this show or I've listened to interviews, I can't recall exactly who I'm thinking about right now, but I've heard people describe that where at least they're being open, they're being honest and vulnerable. They're like, I'm mostly doing this because it makes me feel good. Yeah. And who doesn't want to feel good? Good. Like, I feel really good that I was able to help X, Y, and Z 100%. get better. So like, even if you're doing it for in that, like, in that selfish way, hopefully you're, I, I, Jeff Bezos, not a good person in my, in my view. Like, I, <laughs> I, I have a really hard time with Jeff Bezos. Uh, for a lot of reasons, people have already heard him on the show, so we won't talk about it now. But what I try to remember is that when Jeff Bezos gives, you know, commits a hundred million dollars to X, it's such a small amount of money for him. But it's like, but that's still a hundred million dollars. It's still a hundred million. It's yeah. still a hundred million that will hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully it's being stewarded in a way that it will do some good. And so let's give thanks for the hundred million dollars. Yeah. Even if that just made him like sleep better for one night or seven nights or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like, okay. Cause I'm, I'm naturally, I don't know if you're into Enneagram or not, but I'm an Enneagram eight, which is like this protector, like challenger, anything, I, anytime I see something wrong, I have to fix it or I want to fix it anyway. And so I'm naturally just very, I, I try to be more hopeful and more, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I'm naturally just cynical. And it's not good. I recognize that I don't want to be that way and I'm working on it, but, um, it's a good point that like, even if, if you're listening and you've got lots of influence and fame and money or whatever, like even selfishly, there's opportunities to do good. Even if it's just going to like stroke you off for a little bit, like, okay, fine. Like that, it takes some of that to make the world go round along yeah. with all the other people that are doing it from a pure heart because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And they might not even have enough, but they're doing it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think sometimes in, in at least even situations like my own, there is also a feeling of responsibility, right? Where I'm like, I, I, you know, the the audience I have is not like, you know, worldly necessarily. I don't have full reach. Um, But there are people who listen to what I have to say. And there are people who, you know, are inspired by the things that I've done. And I, I do take that as a level of kind of speaking for them, you know, and although I maybe wasn't elected and nobody voted for me to take on that role. Um, in some ways, I think the way it's been kind of passed to me has been more substantial than any election would be where it's like, I know kind of, I'm, I'm kind of lifting up the voices of many others who unfortunately, like the way society has kind of valued, at least in what I often talk about are like women athletes and women in sport and women's health 
are all things that tend to be just kind of pushed to the side. And if if I can be the voice that really, you know, helps propel, you know, those issues forward, then that that feels like something where like if it's not me, who's it going to be? Is it going to be the girl that I inspired to do it? Is it going to be somebody else who I'm able to work with to do it? Like, you know, but if I don't do it, who will? I love that. Quick break. Maybe a quick break. Do you need some more tea? You want some more tea? I think I'm okay. I might You're take good? a sip of this. Though. Okay, cool. My LaCroix. Restroom, you good? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So um, you run. It's what you do for a living. Yeah. Which is, again, you you kind of joked about it earlier that, you, that you're like famous for running. Um, I'm not a runner. We'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not opposed to it. I would love for you to convince me today to include <laughs> running into my lifestyle. Uh, but when did you, let's start back at the beginning and then mm-hmm. we'll work our way forward. When did you know, like, how does one figure out that they're good at running? You know, cause again, it's not like, uh, at least I don't, I don't see it that way. Like if you're good at baseball, it'll be evident cause you go onto the baseball field and you hit home runs and you throw the ball faster than other people. Like it's really easy to be like, Oh dude, like Johnny or Susie, they're like really good at mm-hmm. baseball, but running. How did you think, how did you, when did you figure out that you loved running and how did you start to realize, oh, I'm actually good at this? How does one figure out that they're good at running? Yeah. Because you've probably known for a long time, right? Yeah. So I would actually argue that running and swimming, any of these like kind of individual timed events, by far the easiest to know you're good at. Because what you do is you run for a measured distance, you time it. Sure. And you look it up (laughs) and you say, oh, that's pretty good. So I guess for me, it it started off before I was ever capable of doing that, where like when I was a kindergartner, I thought I was fast. Um, And it was because. You're racing around the schoolyard and like you're just getting there quicker than the other kids, whether it's tag or on the playground or whatever. Absolutely. And I think there's something to be said that it's young girls. Um, I grew up in a family of all girls. So I never had. Three sisters, right? Yep. I never had that brother who you know, wasn't supposed to wrestle with me because they might hurt me or that brother who could throw harder or faster, whatever it is. Right. And as kids, you're always more equally matched than like when you get older. Yeah. But I think there's something to be said that like the girl that wins the race, Mm. it's almost a bigger deal than the boy that wins. And so I think young girls sometimes almost have even like an easier time recognizing they're good because you're looking around and you're like, why are all the adults super excited that I just crushed that like 12 year old boy and I'm nine, you know, <laughs> there's kind of that's so that. true. I mean, um, even today in 2021, that's still a thing. That's still a thing. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago or, you know, 18 years ago for sure. Yeah. And so for me, it was this, you know, in elementary school, in gym class, you sometimes ran and, um, I remember in kindergarten, initially there were two, also like the fact that I remember this is insane, but there were two boys who were faster than me. One time, one of the boys did not come to gym because he ended up going home sick. After that, he never beat me because I was like, I was second once. I've tasted victory. I'm never letting this kid go. And I look back and I'm like, I was five. What was wrong with me? Um, By first grade, I was the fastest kid in the class. By third grade, there had been enough like inter-class competitions to know that I was the fastest kid in the grade. And then by fifth grade, I actually like did a six ten mile on the track. Whoa! What what age? Uh, fifth grade. And then by sixth grade, I ran five forty seven. The five forty seven race, I t- it was like kind of this like after school thing, and I'd eaten sloppy joes like an hour before. Let's just say right after there was a lot of rolling around and groaning on the <laughs> yeah. track. But at by that point, those were almost like 
researchable times and there were enough people around to say like 547 is really fast. Um, so as a seventh grader, I was a swimmer growing up. And so I, I swam in the fall. I was on the varsity team. Um, and at the time I was like, I was a good swimmer, right? Like there's been kids who swam for that program who've gone on to the Olympics. Like it was a, it was a good program. And I was probably always like top three girls, you know, my age group from that team, normally not number one, always in the A relay kind of level. And so did varsity swimming on the A relay, not even really that close to making state meet. That spring I ran track and I ended up meddling at states for D2, granted, which was like small schools. Um, but I ran a 503 mile and ended up going to nationals and competing on like our national relay team. And I think in my mind in that moment, I was like, wow, I know I'm a good swimmer for my age group, but I am actually borderline nationally ranked in track as a seventh grader. Yeah. And I think having that comparative moment of being like, oh, this is what really good is meant that the next year I did indoor outdoor track by the end of eighth grade, I'd broken five for the mile um, and competed again at state. We were third nationally in our relay. And then by my freshman year, I decided to do all three seasons of running. I, I cannot comprehend how fast that is. Like, I can't think of how fast that is. I mean, I know it, I've seen it, but like, I think the, like, I'm not a runner. The best mile I've ever done is like, <laughs> it's so sad. It's like 12, I don't know. It's it's many minutes, which is still like, I, I've run a mile before. Yeah. But um, that's really insane. Like, that's just so, that's so fast. How, what was your training regimen back then <laughs> to like, to keep that up? Like, what does one have to do to be running like under four, under five minute miles? Like, and yeah, what does that look like? Oh God, in middle school, nothing. You, you, just, you just get up and run. You like go to practice and you go for a 30 minute run. And then years later you realize like, I think I was running like 10 minute pace on those runs. Probably did like three miles. We'd stop a couple times for water. Sometimes we wouldn't even really go for the run. We'd like go get ice cream or something. And then like a couple times a week, you did some track stuff, which was kind of like run fast for a lap, walk, run fast for a lap, walk. And then honestly, I think in middle school, it's just more like you race so often. Like every weekend you have a race and you maybe run like two or three races. And so it's almost like once a week, you just go balls to the wall for whatever the race is because you don't really know what you're doing. And it's just kind of this natural, like, you know, probably in terms of mileage, I could have been running like like 20, I probably wasn't even running 20 miles a week. I was probably running like 15, but you just, you're young. And you're like, I'm fearless. I'm just going to yeah. throw myself in it. I'm not thinking of pacing. I don't know what's going on. But there was, I think, for me, just like a natural rhythm to it. And it just clicked and it just made a lot of sense to me. What is your favorite? You've you've run all these different distances. You've had all these like really good times on these different events. What's your favorite distance to run? The 3,000. The 3,000. The 3,000. As a seventh grader, that was the event that I made the statement in. Unfortunately, it's not usually competed internationally except for um, at World Juniors, which I won in 2014. Um, but I think my sweet spot is that where it's it's I do have pretty good like endurance and strength as a runner, 
But when it gets too long, like my advantage of speed kind of starts to dwindle a little bit, but I'm, I'm fast, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a 400 meter runner by any means. Yeah. Um, and even like when I broke two in the 800, I wasn't doing that because I have like 50 second 400 speed. I'm doing that because I have like 54 second 500 meters speed, 400 meter speed, which doesn't sound like a big gap, but yeah, like four seconds, it's everything. <laughs> like one person's got 50 meters to go yeah. in the race and the other's done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that's always been my favorite event. And, you know, um, I, you know, when I was competing, I was probably doing more like the mile 5k, sometimes eights. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how it would break down. Yeah. I, 3000 meters is like nine ish thousand feet. So like almost two miles. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Am I, it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, just under two miles. You do that in nine minutes, right? Like, yeah. 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 Which like, I, I was always in tactical races. Like I never really like raced a three K all out. Um, which sounds weird, but like, that's just the thing in running how like, you know, when I won world juniors, it was kind of a slow race. We ran eight fifty eight. That's my PR. Um, but I was more focused on winning than running fast. Yeah. So even though the pace was slow, I just kind of went with it. Um, I'm a little bit far removed from running. Well, I, I ran a 907 a couple of years ago, so I'm not that far removed from yeah. running decently, but I have unfortunately had a really long injury history. And a lot of this kind of stuff I'm talking about is not like right now I could go out and match my PR. Um, but I've been lucky over the last kind of year to have this space to be like, I'm just totally focusing on, on my health right now. Yeah. And it's really good. Yeah. Thank you. And I got to a point where I, this year was the Olympics and my goal for a while was to make the Olympic trials. Cause I'd had surgery, um, on my hips and I was like, I'm going to rehab this. And my goal is Olympic trials. And about like a month to six weeks before the trials, I got into shape that meant like I was pretty close to being able to make it. Like I probably could have tried. Um, but I've had this like long standing issue with my right hip that I just could not figure out. And it was the most frustrating experience mm. because I think, you know, there's always in situations where you've been so good in something and you got so beaten down both like physically and mentally, emotionally, when you almost have this like thing you just can't shake. Yeah. It just feels like, how do you keep going and how do you keep picking yourself up? Um, and so what I decided to do is just kind of shut things down and be like, I'm literally not going to train competitively until I can figure this out. Mm. Like I'm going to give myself that time to not just keep hitting my head against a wall. Um, and three weeks ago we figured it out and I've had a few tendonitis in my hip that intersect and then some inflammation around, um, this like part of like my pelvis and long story short, the reason it was super hard to diagnose is because I, how it would feel to me was that I was losing control of my leg. Mm. And so if I ran too long, if I ran too fast, like there were certain metrics, it would just feel like I had no stability. Like it would feel like my leg went to jelly. Um, and we think it's just that those things were kind of shutting down and despite having like different periods off and different breaks because of other injuries, tendonitis are super fickle. And like, unless you're fixing them, they don't get better. And so it's been this like really, I would say beautiful last month watching the Olympics 
where I got to see a lot of athletes also say like, hey, like I'm taking care of myself first. If I can do that, then I'm going to be good at sport. And if I just plow through things, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be healthy. I'm not going to be good at sport. Um, and it was fun, I think, to kind of feel almost a part of that. It's been interesting the the with the Olympics just going on, the big Simone Biles, right? Like mm-hmm. stepping away for a bit. And obviously she received, Simone received just overwhelming support from most people. I think most good, empathetic people. Yes. <laughs> um, but then there was still like, I don't know how you look at that and think, I don't know how you look at that and become a naysayer. I don't know. I don't know how one looks at that and thinks something bad about her or that situation, but it obviously happened. And, um, I feel like the, the critiques that I saw come up from mostly white middle-aged guys that blog and talk on their mics all day. Um, it was a lot of this, like, like, that's not how Americans do. Like we stay in, we like, like, you know, and most of these guys are like 140 pounds soaking wet. Like mm-hmm. th- they're not, they're not the picture of. They couldn't do a cartwheel. They couldn't do a cartwheel <laughs> or a sit up. And yet they're, you know, they're behind a mic just yelling at Simone Biles who could just wreck them. Like just, she could beat them up <laughs> with her right arm. Like she is, she's amazing in with every way. With her hands like, tied behind her back, just with yeah, her just, th- just one thigh, boom. <gasps> and um yeah, I guess this is a good time to, I guess, based on what you just said and what I'm bringing up, maybe this is a good time to bring this up. Like you're talking about your bodies, like the, 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 the hardships that your body goes through t- when you take your sport seriously. And it gets to this point, right? Where you're at the, you're at the Olympics representing your country and you have to make the, she obviously knew there were going to be naysayers and she had to say, no, are you, you know, not going to tryouts because you just knew okay, I could do it, but I might hurt myself permanently or we got to figure this out first, right? I am a, I grew up in Guatemala, like I said, playing, playing football, the real, the real football. Uh, every day we used to play a lot of like just rec ball, but I, I never got into like competitive like sports. And at, now that we're raising three kids, I'm thinking about sports and I'm like, I don't like when I look when I look at a lot of the kids I grew up that were in competitive sports and now like some friends of mine that are putting their kids in competitive sports. I don't like some of what I see. Of course. Because it for so many of them, it's like what on the one hand, you know, I get it, teamwork, blah, blah, blah. You can you can do that anywhere though. If my kids in band or on their drama team, like you can still do teamwork. So sports is not the only place you can learn how to be a team. Mm-hmm. But it's so much money and it's so intense for something that is like purposefully, I guess running might be different. Maybe, maybe not, but like, like American football, like you're literally giving yourself brain damage by the time you're in high school. Um, and I guess how do you reason through that? Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to skip ahead to, I don't know, maybe if it comes naturally, we can skip into Atalanta right now, but, um, no, let's ease into it. Let's ease into it because I want to also talk about you joining the Nike team and all that went down there, you know, different forms of abuse that you experienced. Um, but this, this willing, uh, uh, torture that you're putting yourself through, like, and you just know your body is just taking a beating every time you go out for these like long, intense runs. And, and then it might, you know, you're 25, right? 25, 26, like, who knows what health problems could come up. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm getting at is like, how do you think through and how do you communicate to other people? Like, like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go through all that? 
Um, obviously, we need to be healthy. We need to take care of ourselves. I want to be on this earth as long as I can. But what's the trade-off yep. for getting into these like competitive sports? Like, how do we how do we talk through that? Yeah, I think that is an incredible question and one in which people need to be talking a lot more about. And I think to start, you know, running is a sport that is the highest impact yeah. that you do in training. Um, obviously things like football and, um, boxing when you're like really in the arena, it's more high impact. Um, but running is the only thing where you put like four to five times your body weight through your leg, like every second for, for long periods of time, <laughs> very long right? periods a of mile, time. 21 miles. Like yeah. it just goes. That's the thing. So it's, it's an incredibly intense sport, um, physically, but I think at least, um, you know, from my experience, the reason that running and the reason that a lot of sports enter into the unhealthy is when you try to fit your body into a mold that it's not necessarily mm. meant to be in. Um, so like gymnasts have had this issue, runners, um, I mean, honestly, all sorts of sports where things like weight or like body dimensions or all these kind of like very specific metrics start coming into play, that's when people start to hurt themselves, right? If you're running and you do everything right where you slowly build into it and you have the right mindset about your training and you have the right support system and do the right recovery, like there are people who run a hell of a lot more than I have ever run yeah. and stayed perfectly healthy. But nine out of 10 times, the reason that they do is not because they're more talented or have some special stride or insert something like that. But nine out of 10 times, the reason that they stay healthy is because they don't force themselves to look a certain way. Yeah. And I think that's that really problematic, particularly in youth sports, where, you know, this isn't just a women's issue. I think it often can kind of be exasperated for girls because of societal pressures in this department anyway. But when you're supposed to be X weight and like that's what your coach says and you're going to do it, well, that doesn't mean that that's ever going to support the amount that you're running mm. or the amount that you're jumping or throwing or whatever your sport is. Um, and sometimes for sports, it's not even necessarily like just an, a weight thing, but sometimes it can be like you need to put on this amount of muscle within this period of time. Well, the truth is that's really hard to do. Yeah. And Honestly, when something becomes unreasonably biologically beyond the idea that it can enter in the unhealthy because you're forcing your body into a mold and risking injury, but it also opens up the can of worms of, okay, well, if you can't do this naturally, how are you going to do it unnaturally? Are you going to be taking something? Sure. And I think it's important to say that like, yes, I hate performance enhancing drugs. I hate that people cheat. Like that bothers me so much. But the reason I find it scary is because most of those things actually hurt you whether it's short-term or long-term. Like the number of people who you see doing performance-enhancing drugs who, as you said earlier, you want to stay on this planet for as long as you can, but are having heart attacks in middle age or having, you know, bone issues or whatever the complications surrounding these drugs are, or even just having to be addicted to some form of medication yeah. for a long period of time. Um, like I feel that you hurt yourself when you don't treat your body right. And you don't treat your body right by trying to force it to look a certain way or force it to do something quicker than it's ready to do. Because um, that's the other side. The other kind of maybe more like, you know, 
basic, your average um, amateur in any sort of sport, the reason they're going to get hurt if they're not like forcing themselves into like a physical mold is a performance mold where they're like, okay, I have to be Q by two months from now. And I'm starting having never run a step in my life. And now I'm trying to break three hours in the marathon. Let me do my first run at 30 miles. Okay. You're going to get hurt. That's not going to work. Right. <laughs> That's not how you do it. Um, but I think sports in and of themselves are usually not dangerous. It's when we try to force things that they become dangerous. And who's most at fault for that happening? There's probably lots of people and things that are at mm -hmm. fault. Is it more society, the coaches? Again, it's probably all of the above. I can name a few more things, but like who's most at fault? Who, mm -hmm. in other words, who could, who's the easiest, who's the first person that should break that cycle? It's not the kids, mm -hmm. it's, it's not, not kids. the youth. It's not, it's, even if they're adults, it's not them, like, they want this so badly. If you tell them to jump, they're going to say how high. Yeah. So who who should be the first person or thing that pulls back the reins a little bit and says, wait, or like, why are we doing this? We're hurting people long term. For what? For, yes. For met, like, like cups made out of metal. Exactly. And like short term financial, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we doing Who's most at fault here in your experience? I think it's, it's less who's most at fault. And it's more who needs to change first, right? Mm. And I think society is always going to take the longest. So you can't really pick society. So I think if you're going to look at like kind of the list, I would say coaches. And the reason I'm going to say that is because parents are crazy. Parents are the worst. <laughs> parents are the helicopter people who sign their kids up for 20 different things and you know, want their kids to look a certain way, get a certain scholarship, live their dreams, right? Yeah. But I'm going to sit here and say, my parents did not know what the hell they were doing. And in a way that was beautiful and perfect, but in a way that like, I almost know that when you don't have a parent that cares about that stuff, when you don't have a parent that's like hyper competitive or- They're trusting- the coaches it, exactly. and the schools, right? And even in the moments where you do have the parent that's crazy and intense and all this sort of stuff, they're still trusting the coach. And they almost have, I believe, this ability to almost speak to the kids where your mom's like, yeah, Mary, you can have the milkshake. Like, it's okay. Don't feel bad about that. And you're like, my mom's never run 10 miles. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Mm. My coach knows, right? But if your mom's like, no, you can only eat three like peaches and that's your dinner. Like, and your coach is like, no, Mary, if you want to be the best, like you got to eat that pasta. I almost feel you're going to take the coach more seriously. And it, it's hard if you're in that environment and home, like it's, it's still toxic and it's something that's in a really difficult situation and obviously needs to change as well. Um, but I think I would rank first is the coach. And it's because a young person is always going to at some point rebel against their parents. And I think the more there's kind of a safe place for them to go and a safe kind of net for them through the coach who then imparts good teamwork and good teammates and creates a circle of friends for somebody and then creates a good like societal dynamic within this really small way that that can spread. Then when that kid, you know, grows up and has their own kid, um, I don't know. I just think that's first. Um, but sometimes that, that circle can go so much bigger, like beyond just the coach and the parent and the kid, yeah. you know, you have the like school official 
And then you even just have the like local run club that they can aspire to, you know, join or the college team that they can look up to or the professional athletes who they can stay, you know, and I think professionals have a lot that they should be doing to be better in this. But if you're a young person and everybody tells you like, hey, like being happy and healthy is the number one thing. Like that's all you got to do. And then you're on your Instagram for 40 hours a day and you're like, this person's not happy or healthy, but they won. Like right. that, that impacts things too. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why we're in this like really powerful moment right now where the mindset has not shifted amongst pros, but you're finally all of a sudden starting, like you're seeing Simone say no. And you're seeing Simone say no and then still come in third and yeah. an event at the Olympics. Still shine so brightly. Yes. Yeah. So you're like, wait a minute, wait, okay. I can be really good and be healthy and happy. And I think for a while, and I put myself amongst this category, but like people really are glad everything I said, really appreciate it, super positive stuff. But there's kind of this like, well, she hasn't run fast in a while. Mm. Like, you know, it's real. I'm really happy for you that you gained some weight, but like maybe you'd be better if you didn't. And I think that's been so frustrating as an athlete because I'm able to be like, but look at the 40 other people who don't have as much attention as yeah. I do and who did say, like, my friend Molly Seidel just got a bronze medal at the Olympics in the marathon. Like, the last Olympic trial, she put herself into an eating disorder treatment center because she's like, I need to take care of myself. Jeez. And, like, that moment is more important in some ways than, like, almost any others in these sort of sports because you're able to finally point to people and say like remember how we've been telling you this is good it works out yeah and it is good and it and it performs that's super helpful i mean speaking of uh coaches 2013 2013 (laughs) 2013 was a big moment for you Mm -hmm. you joined what uh i mean i don't know this i'm just saying what i read because i'm not a runner but like the best track team (laughs) in the world you know nike's Oregon project and um tell us about that experience because that is what led you to i mean some pretty difficult years and i think what ultimately led you to you know form and launch atlanta and the work that you're doing now Uh, a lot of the reasons that people know you is because you've spoken up Mm -hmm. about these things so talk about what happened back then and you know take us up to you know, more recent times when, you know, what, what happened over those years? Um, I mean, is it, is it too, is it too much to say that, that your career, your career as a runner was almost ruined, mm-hmm. ruined? I don't like, I don't, I don't know how, how you would, how you would describe it, but talk about coach and what happened there and the, the, the stark difference in what you were doing and again, you probably, again, talking, going back to what we just said, where the coaches know best, mm-hmm. you're probably thinking, I'm going to do whatever the hell this guy tells me to do. Of course. This is Nike. Like, this yeah. is the, the best of the best. Yeah. Um, and you don't know any better because, again, you're trusting that, like, I'm just the runner. He's the coach. He's this famous, like, I'm going to do whatever he says. And that wasn't obviously good <laughs> in the end. So t- talk about that experience and kind of we'll we'll launch into our conversation about Atlanta and what you're doing now. Yeah. So when I was in like middle school, high school, uh, just to take it a step back, there were a lot of helicopter parents. I came from an all white, super wealthy town where there were parents who would pay their way for their kid to be the best. And like that's 
not my parents. <laughs> you know, um, my favorite story to kind of describe it is the first non-dual meet race I ever ran. I think I ran like a 5-12 in like a four by mile, like just just random event. And one of the parents came up to my dad afterwards and went, what's your pedigree? What? And so my dad being my dad goes, poodle. Um, <laughs> and the guy Straight did, face? Straight face. Love it. The guy did not think that was funny and proceeded to explain like, how have you been training her? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. So long story short, I didn't have a great experience on my kind of like middle school, high school running team. And I think a lot of that spanned from the fact that I've always been, or when I was younger, I was like a very gullible, trusting, like want to be the best I could be sort of kid. And I think sometimes that rubbed people the wrong way and whether fairly, unfairly, I don't really care. But I think, um, you know, what's important is that I wasn't very happy despite reaching a level where I was a national record holder in high school running for the 1500, which is like kind of a marquee event. Yeah. I'd qualified for the Olympic trials. I'd been six at a world junior event. Um, but like within my super small high school team, um, I had been bullied for a couple of years and I had finally reached a point where I sat down with my parents and we were starting to compose emails to college coaches to tell them, Hey, I'm no longer going to be competing in high school, but I'm the national record holder. I'm still going to probably be running on my own, maybe doing some like kind of club races, whatever. Um, keep me in mind in two years. And I started composing that on a Monday. And I remember super vividly that I went to like afterwards, like my mom, I think kind of felt bad about the whole situation. So we went out to get like our hair done. And I remember her asking if you could have anybody coach you, who would it be? And I said, Alberto, because to me, like that's, the, it was the best team. His yeah. People just won medals at the Olympics, whatever. That Friday, he called my house. And so to say that that was a dream come true is something that I don't think people has ever really understand. Yeah, right. Like I almost left running. I almost left my high school team for like the sort of stuff that's just like petty high school shit. Yeah. And so I had this moment to like keep running, keep running with the best people in the world. And so to say that I was like starstruck, like excited, can never be overstated. Um, and so for the first two years, I was a junior and senior in high school. Things went really well. I qualified for a world championship team, won a world junior championships, set all sorts of records, ran all sorts of times, um, and genuinely had like a good time doing it. There, in retrospect, were so many moments where I'm like, oh, that was such a warning sign. Like, I wish I could have picked up yeah, on that. Yeah. But in the moment, you're just, you're young, you're rolling with it. And I always had this buffer of being home because I still lived in New York. I traveled a lot, but there was still this kind of like family, high school friends bubble that I was in. And at the time, like, Everything just seemed super kumbaya. And then I moved out to Oregon and things just like flipped. And in retrospect, again, like, you know, my parents were people who used to be kind of included in things and were like invited to stuff and just fully cut out. You know, it's just you. It's just me. And not just in a like, oh, you moved across the country way, but it was like, 
you do not call home and complain to them because if you do, you're going to get yelled at because you're not being an adult. You're not being a professional. Suck it up. And so certain things like very quickly, like I kind of trained myself because of what they were saying that like I could only go to them with my problems. Mm -hmm. And it's because the few moments I went to my parents to be like, hey, I'm not feeling well. Like, oh, they're talking about my weight a lot, blah, blah, blah. Being my parents, they would call up and be like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. And then Alberto would be like, oh, no, she's overblowing it. Hang up. Go to me. Yell at me and be like, how dare you do that? So it just went from kind of How many this, times like, did you do that before you stopped doing it? Um, Twice. Yeah. And then the, yeah, it doesn't take that long. No, yeah. no. Because it's like you get yelled at. And, you know, you're 18, you're a freshman in yelled college. Yelled at by, again, not just anybody, the dream coach. Yeah. And when you'd go to then other people on the team and they say like, no, you do have to suck it up, do whatever he tells you to do, you're kind of like, okay, you're 35. <laughs> you're telling me to do that. Like you probably know something. Yeah. Um, and again, you go back to the like, oh, well, my parents – I've never been elite athletes. Like, this is probably what you do and tough up and grit and insert any sort of masculine verbiage. Yeah. Um, and so long story short, um, I really was in the most toxic experience of my life for a year. And it was one in which I was like fully immersed in it and there was nowhere else to go. There was nowhere else to be. Um, and I was kind of like, force there and I think it was hard because you know you had this image of what things were going to be and then you almost like you don't know how to get yourself like you don't know how to save yourself in those moments because at the time I didn't recognize what was going on as abuse and I think that's what's most upsetting yeah. to me looking yeah. back at it is that you know the difference between 2014 2015 and 2021 <laughs> It's actually a lot. There's been a Me Too movement, yep. conversations about athletes' mental health, like all sorts of things that I've I've watched and been a part of wasn't there for me. And if anything, I just had teammates who said, suck it up, do what you're told. Yeah. And so I think in the moment, I I didn't see it as what it was. I saw it as I'm at fault, I'm a problem. Like I, I'm sorry to everybody who, you know, is being an asshole to me. Like this must be my fault. I'm really sorry. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is that in our society, we have this need to rank. And whether it's in performance, whether it's in work, whether it's in even relationships, like we always are kind of like, who's who's higher? What's worse? What's better? And I think when it comes to abuse, you know, we really, really like to kind of do that. And it's like, unless you've been full throttled, suck it up. And I think that's really problematic as a society. As an individual, if you kind of use that as a way to cope with trauma and say like, hey, I got myself out before it got too bad, like that I respect and understand and everybody has yeah. their own way to kind of deal with stuff. But I think from this societal perspective, we almost never wanted and we still do not today want to really say emotional abuse is bad. And it's because then all of a sudden – holy shit, what have we been doing for the last insert all of humanity? Yeah. Um, and so we're kind of, you know, looking back at this period of time and everything I say right now, I almost want people to realize that like, I know now that it was bad. But in the moment when I'd been told, 
you have to look weight. You look fat. Like insert profanity lace statements that I usually try not to say on podcasts. Yeah. Like I, I, I knew it was bad, but I knew it was bad because of me, yeah. not because of them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really fucked with my head. Yeah. And I went down a really toxic path. I developed an eating disorder. Um, and I underfueled, I underate, and I was encouraged to. Like I was told, like, yes, like, you know, there were days where I'm like, oh God, I went on the scale, I'm 120 pounds. I know I'm supposed to be 115. I'm so sorry, I'll only eat apples today. And then I'd be told, like, yep, that's good. That's smart. You know? Goodness gracious. Um, I'd be told stories of a woman who coaches there and how she used to only eat apples when she had to lose weight. And so, you know, that was probably a good thing. So that's why I thought that that was a good thing. And so I was just like really in this. And what ended up happening was I finally had a breaking point. And I had a breaking point where I didn't suddenly say, oh, my God, this experience has been really toxic. This is really bad. I had this moment of being like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. Mm. Like. I am suicidal. I have cut myself. I have, you know, done all of the things that are kind of leading me to a point to be like, I'm really fucked up. Yeah. Like, I'm the problem. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was I ended up calling my parents at the end of my freshman year of college and saying to them, like, I have an eating disorder. I need help. And I didn't tell them about, like, everything because, you know, I didn't see it. I didn't realized some of the stuff was creepy and bad and wrong and upsetting. And so I had this super awkward year where I lived at home with my parents, but I was still a part of the team because like I wanted to go back. Like I wanted to stay in it. I wanted to be a part of it. I thought like that's still the dream. And I thought, I'm just the problem. Like I'm the one ruining the dream. Nobody else. So I got to fix myself so I can go back into it. Yes. And so I lived at home for a year and by the end of the year, it was the Olympic trials and I, there was all sorts of like just really bad situations that happened over the course of time. And I remember there was one email where I just like kept being pressured to move back out right away. And I remember just being like, I, I cannot, like, I have to figure this out and like I'm not okay and I'm really sorry that I'm not like I'm trying to be okay so we can all be okay but I'm just not and so I raced at the Olympic trials and I at the end of it was just so like over the whole experience I was just kind of treated differently because I was no longer living out there and people just weren't very nice to me Mm. and Honestly, what happened was my current coach, who I've been working with for years, um, like I always kind of had like somebody in New York, um, John Henwood, caught me cutting myself after the race. And it was because I was in like a pure panic attack and I probably start crying because I think this is a very like powerful moment for me. But he called my parents. Um. And I really begged him not to. And I was like, please don't do it. Like, they're going to be mad at me. They're going to be upset. And he was like, Mary, I don't know how to help you. 
like, this is something that you need help with. And I'm not that person. And he's like, I'm that person for you whenever you need anything. Mm -hmm. But this is something where you need to talk to a doctor. You need to see a professional. Like, you need help. And we're going to get you that. And I was so mad at him. And John, if you're listening to this, I was mad at him for years Mm. about doing this. Because honest to God, what happened was my mom said, you have to leave the Oregon Project. And she's like, your health is more important than this. And so I did. And I didn't really want to. Because, again, I'm not looking at this situation thinking, oh, my God, this situation's so bad. Like, these people are cursing me. They're yelling at me. They're weighing me in front of people. They're weighing me privately in the house. I'm staying in this guy's house for long periods of time. I've known him since I was a minor. Like, insert the whole barrage of history some of which people know, some of which they'll probably never know about how how close of a relationship this was. Um, But I, I left. And I think because it was done in such a way where it almost, it almost was like a failure leaving. Like it was almost this like, I let my, I let my dream die sort of moment. It was my fault feeling at the time. it took me a really, really long time to sort of like move on. And because of the repercussions of everything I had done to my body over those two years, I had had menorrhea for the whole period of time. And once you've had that for long periods, it's hard to get rid. Like it takes a lot to like regain your period and regain your health. And so I ended up having this like slew of injuries and injuries lead to injuries. And I had no support from like a team anymore. I had no support in the same way from like a sponsor And I'm just alone in the world depressed. And I, you know, at a certain point, probably around like beginning of 2019, um, was starting to move on. Like at this point, I was moving on in the way where I was like, okay, I'm a weak failure. Like, I guess it's all me. Insert all the issues. Um, And then we like kind of, I think, was ready to a little bit walk away. Like I was still running, but it was kind of this like... Like a lot of people run just. Yeah. yeah, Like, I don't think I'm like, I don't think I'm really good enough anymore. Mm. Like the powers that be have told me I'm not, I believe them. And what happened was in October of 2019, U.S. Anti-Doping Agency um, came out with a report that Alberto Salazar was banned for cheating. And when it first came out, like the first reaction from me was like, no way. No. And I. Everybody at this point knows everything I've ever said. Right. And you're like, how did you not? Of course, Mary. <laughs> but in that moment, you're like, I I didn't see it. Mm. And I read, I think it's like 270 pages, the report. And I read the whole thing. You read, read it's like a book. Every single page. And it was the moment where I was like, holy shit. I was lied to. There was so much wrong with this situation. There were so many horrible situations going on, some of which that in retrospect, like, yeah, I was, like, offered inhalers and told you should go on this medication and, like, all sorts of sketchy stuff. But the thing is, I was the girl who said no. I was the girl who was like, no, I don't have asthma. It's all good. And, yeah, are they probably, like, twitching in the corner being like, damn, this kid. Yeah. But, like, I'm – I'm young. I'm oblivious. I believe this is the dream. Nike's saying this is what, just do it. Um, 
And over the course of the report, besides just learning all sorts of new stuff about other people's experiences, there were moments where it was kind of this explicit, like, athletes were told this, but that was a lie. This is really what happened. And I was like, every time in that, like, athletes were told this, but it's a lie, period. And I was like, if I was lied to, and this is in writing, and this guy has been deemed a cheater. What the hell else was going on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you start looking back at things. Now you're like, okay, the... You're putting two and two together. You're seeing connections. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, safe sport exists. I've gone through that training. Wait a minute. Like, this is what grooming is. This is why it's inappropriate to maybe stay in somebody's house for months on end alone as a 17-year-old, 16-year-old. Right? And you're at the time like, no, it's okay. And now you're like, that really wasn't okay. And I, I'm only laughing because I think people don't, unless you've, like, it, people always, when something horrific happens, their first question when somebody comes out a year, two years, three years, five years later, is like, why didn't they say it immediately? Worst goddamn question ever. Worst but it, goddamn but it, question. But it, but it comes up every time. Every time. Yeah. And I always feel it's one of two things. Either it was so traumatic and horrible in the moment for that person and something that they kind of internalized as shameful and negative and whatever 100 which should never be the case but it is what happens naturally that they don't talk about it or they have no idea what just happened yeah. and it sounds so stupid to say that but unless you've experienced these levels of abuse like you don't always know because abusers are really good at what they do. That's why they get away with it. Yeah. Um, and so long story short, this made me go, holy shit. And when I sat and cried in front of Lindsey Krauss on a <laughs> little TV screen that people have watched now like 17 million times or something, I, I was four weeks post-reckoning. This wasn't something that every night I'd been writing in my diary. Yeah. Like my 40th email to Lindsey Krauss has gone unanswered. Like this was such a fast turnaround that I think in so many ways, like that moment for me was like a part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I suddenly realized, oh my God, there could be millions of people out there who don't know. Mm -hmm. Like who else doesn't know? Right. Um, and that really, really scared me. And I just said like, I... I can't live with myself. Like now that I know, now that you've suddenly, I, I've never even watched The Matrix, but you've taken the pill that now you yeah. know about the world. Like you can't re-swallow. Like yeah. you can't, you got to help pull the other people out. And that's just who I am. Um, and so I think a lot of things for me over the last now year and a half since I've spoken publicly about my story has been one, healing myself and retraining my brain. Because certain things I've talked to my therapist a lot about, right? But like I, by the time I shared my New York Times piece, had a much better relationship with food. But in the way that like I was eating properly, but I was doing it in this super defeatist, like, I guess you're now just not good enough to stay skinny kind of way. Mm. Versus this like, no, this is really the proper way to feel right. my body. Like yeah. food is good kind of way. And I think you know, maybe almost bringing it back to the very first conversation we were talking about of like, you know, even like doing good, right? Yeah, sometimes the end is still good no matter what. 
But if there's not the proper means and you're not almost doing it for the right reasons, insert bachelor quotes, like it, it's not, it's not actually the same thing. And I think being able to realize why I was having struggles all of a sudden made me realize like how to fix them. And it wasn't this like, you know, like, okay, you broke bone, heal bone. It was suddenly like, oh, you've like hurt your body for years that maybe we need to like really slowly ramp back into things, clean everything up internally and not keep plowing ahead just because some bad guy told you to plow ahead. Um, And I think, yeah, that's how I've really been kind of like living my life the last year and a half. And it's like healing myself and trying to spread that to others and just raise awareness about like maybe what we should be saying is right and wrong. Are you still mad at Coach Haywood? Um, no, John. Is it Coach Haywood? <laughs> it's Henwood. Headwood. Henwood. Um, Henwood. no, yeah. I, I so understand grateful. why you were at first. Like, yeah. that makes total sense. Oh, 100%. but do you understand now? Like, has, has that, have you had time to, like, do you know what I think is the craziest part about that story? It's that the first time I ever sat down with him and I was like, I really have to thank you for that. Like, that moment was pivotal in my life. And now I know that. And I had this conversation with him right before I shared my New York Times piece because I was like, John, this is about to happen. You're going to be shook. You don't even realize 90% of the things I'm going to be talking about within this piece because I was too scared to tell you. Like, thank you. Mm. He was like, wait. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, shit. I remember that. He was like, wait. I did that. You've been upset about that? I didn't know that's like, because again, it's like sometimes in these moments, like somebody can do something really powerful for you. And it's almost just so the decent, goddamn, normal thing to do. For him, it was the right thing to do. And then he moves on. Yeah. For you, it was, it upended your world. Exactly. And so I think sometimes like those moments are really interesting to look back on because you're like, wow, like that should just be people's reaction. It should be like, oh, Mary's struggling. Let me help her. You were, you seem to be getting help. We're good. If you if you want to talk about it, I'm here. If you don't, like, I know you're getting the help you need. And I just look back at that and I'm like, wow, like, that is a good person. Like, mm. That is what people should do. Um, and so, of course, I'm so grateful because who knows where I would be right now totally. if, if my mom hadn't caught me. And maybe I did convince them to let me move back out there because that was the way pressure was being driven. And, and who knows? Maybe I would have broken down and really bad things would have happened to me or maybe I would have bought into the system and said screw it and did whatever the hell they wanted me to do and you know I'd be a very different figure right now and a very different person um and I think this is sometimes a conversation that I have with my boyfriend because I think sometimes when I get like upset about this past stuff you know it can almost be hard for him because he's like I'm so sorry that happened but had it not happened, like, you wouldn't be here with yeah, me. You wouldn't have done right. the things you would have done. You wouldn't have the friends you have. And I think it's almost like to people who care about me, they're like, is there some form of regret or sadness or, like, what is this? And I'm like, no. It's at this point, like, anger that I let these people do this to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, 
inner crazy girl from kindergarten wasn't going to let the boy come back because he had a cold one day and beat me the next week in the gym class laugh. Like that is who I am as a person. That kind of like broken down, like fully letting them seep into my mind person is not who I am. And I think so much of my like sadness is almost for that 18 year old girl who let people feed like eat into her. Um, and I think one thing that still makes me angry is when kind of those very same people play the like, well, I think she has just mental health issues card. And I'm like, so first off, never shame people for mental 100%. health. hundred percent. Like yeah, that is so. Yeah. Like, even if it was true. Had so I had any predisposed issues. Like that was always going to happen to me no matter what biologically you couldn't treat me like that. Like, it doesn't matter whether or not it's something internal. Like, that is wrong. Like, are we all of a sudden going to be going down this kind of, like, weird, probably ultimately, like, insert racism, sexism, everything, anti-disability line of thinking where it's like, well, maybe we just shouldn't hire those athletes anymore (laughs) because that's what they're saying. Yeah. But I think the other thing is, no, I think in some situations, like, you know, these are externally driven traumas that caused me to go down these paths. And I do believe had I never experienced that and had I never been a part of that, I don't think that would have happened to me. Yeah. And do I know then therefore I would have won Olympic gold and I would be, you know, over here doing X, Y, and Z. No, we have no idea what would have happened, but I genuinely can say I was emotionally abused during a very pivotal period of my life. And it sent me down a really, really traumatic path. And I don't want that to happen to anybody else. The, the Stoics got it right. Well, I mean, even Jesus got it right. A lot of very wise people in history got it right. You know, that, that suffering is such a key part of life. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't want to see anybody suffer in any way, but those that have suffered by and large are stronger, Mm -hmm. more resilient, they're tough. They have wisdom to impart. And we almost, I mean, we, we, we make jokes about people that are privileged and have never gone through stuff, right? Because they're soft, like generally. Yeah. And again, not wanting people to go through it, but realizing that we will suffer in different ways. Yes. It's not only part of life. And again, not in like a weird, like macho masochistic kind of way, but like bring it on. Yeah. Because I know that In other words, I'm not going to like, I might not run headlong into it, but I'm also not going to avoid it because I know that if I make it through, which I plan on it, I'm going to have shit to teach other people and I'm going to be able to help, you know, help them avoid X, Y, or Z. And I think that's what you're trying to do right now, right? Yes. With Atalanta is like, um, and we'll get into that right now. We'll kind of like land the plane in this conversation, you know, at least for today, talking about that, I think. Yeah, had you not gone through that, you could have started some nonprofit probably, mm-hmm. you know, for running or whatever, but it wouldn't be this one. No. It wouldn't be with this focus because no. everything went well. You went to the Olympics, you did this, you did that, and now you start a nonprofit, whatever, mainly or maybe just a purely mentor, young girls, whatever, but not with the, I went through some shit and I want you to like care about running, care about keeping your body, you know, healthy and well, but also here's some things to beware. Yes. And like, uh, you wouldn't have been able to do that had you not gone through that, right? No. So talk about um, at what point in this – so that was 2019, big mm-hmm. op-ed. Um, 
real quickly before we get into that. So Albert, uh, Alberto Salazar is obviously at fault here, but so is Nike. Um, has has have things changed? Like, are you allowed to talk about that? Should I move past that? <laughs> I mean, I think based on my experience, I'm going to say no. Yeah. I think, you know, I'll be totally honest. When I did the New York Times piece, I thought like my mom would watch it. And that's yeah. like it, you know? And I thought, okay, if I can help one person, if there's one sure. person trapped, totally unaware of emotional abuse, that's going to be so powerful. And even if that person is selfishly me, like even if it's just me saying like I did everything I could and I'm the only person who ever watches the whole video, that my expectations were low. Yeah. And beforehand, Lindsay's like, Mary, I think this is going to be really big. And I was like, no, Lindsay, like there's going to be like three people that just do it. Like, yeah. oh, God, I can't believe I just used that slogan. Right. And <laughs> of course, millions of people end up watching it. and I'm here today. Right. And I think. Maybe being the sort of person who thinks it's good to share stuff like that and and change is good and even though it can be scary at times, like we should all try to treat people like people. Yes. <laughs> Basic statement. Yeah. Um, I think I thought there would be this like, hey, thanks for letting us know. That's good to know. Not all of us knew that was happening because we're big. Cool. Let's figure stuff out, right? Just what you think. Yeah. You don't expect the first statement to come out. You, well, first off, you don't even know if there's ever going to be a public statement. Right. But then when the public statement's like, her parents knew everything that was happening, I'm like, who's the social media intern who just tweeted that? Do they yeah. Do they even know who I am? Did they even yeah. know I ever ran for them? Like, yeah. And so I think for me, no, no, nothing at all. As far as you know. As far as I know. Nothing structurally has changed no, to make all that the same, happen. It, all the same people yeah. are there. Um, there were some like, you know, like title changes, but like they're paying for all of Alberto's like legal defenses. Of course. And um, when people tried to protest on campus about what happened to me and, and, and the re like people who were employed by Nike who were upset with how my situation was being handled publicly. Um, there was this attempted protest outside the Alberto Salazar building. Because, yes, he does have a building on campus named after him. Fantastic. And when people showed up for it, they were threatened to be fired if they walked within a certain distance. There was, like, patrol set up. Any sort of media that went on campus was, like, kicked off and, like, escorted out, like, in a very aggressive way. Um, and I am so grateful for every single person that showed up on that day. But I also feel so bad because I think that was the moment where they probably realized, oh, my God, this runs really deep. Yeah. Where, like, if you're going to fight somebody who says, hey, something really, really bad happened to me, I think you should know. Right? And I think one thing, and I'll circle it kind of like to the Naomi Osaka situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, and this is something I wrote with Lindsay Krauss about and we talked about in a piece she recently did called The Power of Nope, um, is that so often, again, there's always the insert middle-aged white man who will go, but why didn't you talk to them first? And you're like, okay, come on. Like, you don't think I tried? Yeah. Like, you don't think she tried? You don't, and you know what? Even if she didn't, don't you think she's smart enough to know when it's even worth trying yeah. and when the power of her voice can transcend those who just 
have never wanted to listen to her. Yeah. And like, that's what I just find so odd is that we as a society, like, so aspire almost to like fame and money and all this sort of stuff. And yet we like really are not skeptical of institutions. No. Right? We, like we, it's not nearly enough. No, where it's like, okay, yeah. Naomi Osaka is a successful woman of color because she's incredibly talented at something that very powerful institutions pay her for, right? And in a situation where it's one woman against multi-billion dollar companies, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, she makes millions of dollars. These are multi-billion dollar companies. We go, oh, she's probably the bad guy because she's a singular entity who is in way less of a powerful position, but I'm jealous of her because I want what she wants. Like, that's how we pick things. And I'm looking at it like, what? Yeah. That's what you want to be. And so you're going to be critical of her because you would just do whatever the hell they wanted you to do yeah. because you're so desperate to be in that position. Yeah. And it's the same reason why like all of these different institutions, I think, get away with a lot of stuff is that so many people would just be so grateful to be a part of it that they're like, I will sell my soul to the devil. It does not matter. 100%. Like give me the things that society has taught me that I'm supposed to want and yep. need. And I think there's something just so sad about that especially because it's so often especially in something like sport people who honestly aren't always like me like I grew up in a very privileged setting like suburbs of New York wealthy town I'm a white blonde girl right, right. but a lot of people who succeed in sport are almost you know somebody who's just super freaking talented and it doesn't matter where they came from they had a skill that was really really good and it shined and I think as a result, like, there should be that much more celebrated than they, I feel, are often treated when things go wrong yeah. in the media. Yeah. And it's because there's this auto-skepticism because they don't, you know, always speak the way or come from the place you wanted or look exactly like you. Um, but maybe the guy who's running the multi-billion dollar company does look a little bit more like you. And so you're going to auto go for him you know and you're just like i and there's still the there's still i know this is a little bit of a of a left turn from what you're talking about but it's there's still the guy girl thing right there's still the boy girl mm -hmm. thing right cuz yes. i don't i don't know what his name cuz i don't follow tennis but you got the guy at the olympics right that blasted simone biles for not doing you know not yeah. staying in and then like 2 days later he breaks his racket on the <laughs> net and like just blows up right and it's and 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 that guy probably in his mind saw no cognitive dissonance in what happened. He yes. was like, no, I'm just doing the thing. I lost. I'm going to break my racket. And yeah. I'm going to be an asshole for five minutes on camera. Yes. And he didn't see that he had just proved us all, proved what we know right, which is yeah. like women can't get away with anything. Yes. Right? Naomi Osaka does it. Uh, Simone Biles, they do it in the right way, and they get blasted for it. Yes. This guy blasts them for it, does something much worse. Yes. And obviously he got criticized. But he got away with it. He's yes. going to be okay. Nothing's going to happen to him. Exactly. He just did the guy thing and moved on. Yes. And so, you know, full circle at the beginning when you were like, it was a big, I noticed that was fast because I was beating boys and that, mm -hmm. and that was a big deal. People were like, oh my God, she's beating all the boys. It's still a thing today. It's still totally a and thing And it's today. not, it, it might be a little better. I think it is a little better, but it's still not like 
a ton better. You know, no. we've still got a lot of work to do. No. Um, okay, so let's let's we we've we've done a lot here, and I don't I but I but I want to talk very specifically for a couple minutes as we ramp down about Atlanta. So give us the high the the well take as long as you want, but I want to respect your time. Give us the why did you start it? These three pillars that you guys are that that are your kind of guiding lights, and then the three programs that you all are leading, and kind of what you want it to become. Like what like why yeah. is this happening, and what do you hope that it'll become? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is like earlier when you were kind of asking a little bit about how you think like we can almost help girls, and you were kind of asking like who are the most important figures yeah, who yeah. need to like change first, and I think like I included professional runners in that category, but I'm also going to include the girls themselves. And I will start off by saying, I hate it when people do the like, well, what was she wearing? What did she look yeah. like? Where was she going? Why was she out that time? Like, that is not what I'm talking about. Right. I think there is a very, very different situation than kind of like we are fully committed to taking out all the bad guys, right? But as you said earlier, like life has struggled. There are situations where like I I can't control everything. And I can't make sure every coach that is bad is gone. I can't make sure that every parent that's crazy, like, figures themselves out. And so sometimes the best way for somebody to, to almost help themselves is to be educated on all of the things that nobody ever teaches you about sports and all of the things that I think are beautiful about sports that have nothing to do with the physical activity that you're specifically sure. doing besides the idea that you can practice really, really, really great life skills while doing something that's really hard. Mm. And so what I mean by that is I think the reason – I know the reason I'm still in sport is because I went through a really bad thing and had to learn how the hell can I care about running, performance, winning, all of these things after everything I went through. Mm. Like why would I care? Why would I put my body through this? All of that sort of stuff. And I think the answers I always came back with is going through this made me learn a lot about how to handle stress, how to overcome really yeah. negative situations, resiliency, the power of your body, body image, like all of those sort of like big, what I consider them to be like healthy sport topics. And so what I have kind of created is this nonprofit in which professional female athletes such as myself who are going to be a part of my team, train with me, like be in the city, being those famous runners in the coffee shop who totally ignore the celebrity because we're like, we're cool too. Yeah. Um, go to underserved parts of New York City and teach healthy sport workshops. And so mm. the idea is, is that there'll be these seasonal-based, structured um, workshops in which once a week, for about an hour, girls will come to a park near them and be taught by mentors like myself where, yes, there'll always be like a fun movement component and something that's physical yeah. just to kind of almost like practice using these skills. But we're going to teach them things like, you know, how to use your breath to calm yourself, right? That's something that like you have to learn in sport. Like if you're on the start line, if you're hyperventilating and about to have a panic attack and you're like, <gasps> you know, you, you should be taught these lessons, but we never do. We're mm -hmm. just caring about the performance side. We're caring about like pushing through. But I think the reason sport, unlike maybe band and drama and some of the other kind of things you were mentioning is that 
when you do learn things in sport, you learn it under such adverse situations because you're dying. Your body is hurting. You can't breathe. You barely can see anymore. You're like, this is painful. Why am I still here? But you keep going. And so I think sport teaches you how to struggle beautifully. And mm, so, yeah. So to me, it's like I want to teach girls lessons that can help them in sport, on the start line, on the field, whatever they're doing. But then they can pull it into the classroom. They can pull it into the interview. They can pull it into whatever 100%. else they're doing in life. And so every week there'll be a new lesson and it'll span from conversations like body image. It'll span to conversations like really physical things like breathing, handling stress, all sorts of the kind of lessons that I think we almost, that I almost look back for myself and realize I begrudgingly learned this. I learned this because I thought I was such a disaster that I needed this. I learned this because I was like, I'm so weak. I'm so broken. Like, fine, I guess I'll do the meditation, mm. right? And then you suddenly do it. And you're like, why did people act like this was the bad? Like, why did they act like this was the thing that like you did if you couldn't handle it? You weren't tough enough and all this sort of stuff. And so I'm excited to kind of pass these lessons along and do it through the vehicle of professional athletes who I think have the ability, again, to just be taken that little bit more seriously than my mom was. Maybe even that little bit more seriously than their, co their you know, hypothetical male coach who's too tough on them, you know, and or their teammate who's kind of jealous of how they're running and is mean to them, right? They can look back and be like, no, Mary, insert any of our uh, athletes, came in and, and she told me this is okay. She told me that I'm strong if I do this. And I think there's something that will be really, really powerful and I'm, I'm excited to do that. And again, whether it helps one girl or 17 million girls, um, I'm just excited to try. Yeah, the, the help that I imagine young girls will get being a part of these workshops and programs could mean the world of difference, right? I, was, I didn't ask it, but I think I know the answer. When you were in Oregon, your parents across the country, everyone where you were was bowing down to King Alberto Salazar and you didn't have people that understood these concepts and ideas around you to say, whoa, like something's not right here. Um, this isn't healthy. This doesn't look right. This isn't good. Why are you not? All, all the things that should have been said to you. The people that cared about you the most were literally on the other side of the country and they couldn't, they couldn't see it up close. And so these girls hopefully will grow. And like you said, this is stuff that isn't just about sports. It's about, they can take these principles into all the parts of life. So it's really huge. It could be huge because we are in this, we are in this time, you know, the, the more, the more, uh, we have technology, right. The more that it develops mm -hmm. and our kids are walking around with their phones and their, you know, um, all these devices, right. Their faces are in it. You know, they're spending hours and hours a day on these things. Yeah. They even take them to the park with no. them. You know, they're literally at the park sitting on the grass, just beautiful. And they're like on their phones or their parents' phones <laughs> or whatever. Um, the more and more, and that's not going to happen. And I don't think we should like 
I also don't want to hide my kids from that. They are going to grow up in a world where knowing how to use technology properly is going to help them make money and, and do well in life. Yeah. But also there's these timeless principles of like healthy living and, and sports are obviously uh, a huge part of that. They've been that historically. I mean, sports, they've been playing it for tens of thousands of years since humans were around. Yes. They learned how to kick a ball and to turn a stick and hit stuff. You know, there's always been sports, right? Yeah. Do you plan on, let's just say this goes well in New York City. Are there plans like, you know, Atlanta, Austin, Seattle, LA, like, you know, because professional athletes, female athletes are everywhere, right? Yeah. Like, is that the plan or do you want? That's you just the dream. Think, yeah. I mean, I, as soon as we launched, we had reached out from people who were international. Yeah, it's great. We had Australia, London, right. Canada, like people everywhere understand why this can work. And they also understand why this is good for the athletes. We're like, as a pro, you know, Olympic sports minus your very few people are not making enough money to retire off of. Yeah. They're barely making enough money to live off of. Like if you knew the average salary of a professional runner, like, <laughs> I, I mean, it depends on who considers themselves a professional, but it's like staggering how little we make. Like the best people are making good money, but you're still kind of like, like 50% of New Yorkers are making more than that. What is going on? Right. Um, and so the thing is that I, I also want this to be something where like it's benefiting the runners, it's benefiting the community, yeah. it's benefiting the girls. Like there's a win-win. It's benefiting sponsors because they're working with a nonprofit. It's benefiting donors because they can be a part of something kind of bigger. Like there's almost nobody in this situation who loses. Even competitors, they're not losing. Yeah. They're just having this like ability to kind of be a part of a sport that's probably going to hopefully grow and mean something more to more people. So yes, the goal to me would be to expand like crazy to kind of show that this model works to really kind of see the track community, both from a sponsorship donor, individual perspective, like say, yeah, we believe this wholeheartedly in helping people across all sorts of shareholders that we're going to invest in this and make that dream possible. And so, you know, right now we're kind of still in that. And I think I'll never not be in that fundraising role sure. <laughs> as CEO. Um, but it's been really, it's been really cool to see the turnout um, and the support. And, and I think the understanding that like for girls, it's so important to see role models in sport. 100%. Because the truth is like I grew up in an all-girl household and my dad only had sisters. So growing up, like we didn't watch baseball. We didn't watch football. Like not, we watched like women's soccer and men's soccer internationally because my grandparents were Irish and we'd hear crazy stories of my grandma, like hitting people with sticks, playing camogie, which is like this Gaelic sport. So hmm. like when it came to sports, I grew up only exposed to sports that were super like even for male, female. And now that I'm older and I have a boyfriend who follows Michigan sports, like I die on that hill every night saying, if we're watching a men's basketball game, we're watching a women's basketball game. If you're <laughs> going to watch football, we're putting on some goddamn field hockey or I'm leaving this yep. apartment. And do I always win? No. But do I try? Absolutely. Yeah. And the truth is most people don't. Yeah. Most people just watch the baseball game and the football game. And I'm not saying you can't enjoy that, but I am saying your three-year-old daughter who's like all decked out in Metscare is sitting there slowly realizing I have no shot. Yeah. And that's really sad. Yeah. And that doesn't need to happen. And it's something that I just see as a major reason for why girls drop out of sports. It's because they don't see an opportunity for themselves. And when sports are taught in a way, unlike how I'm going to do it, 
which is all about competition, which is all about winning, which is all about grit. And you're kind of 12 and you're like, well, God, I mean, maybe I can do this in college and then it's over. Right. You know, maybe I should go do something else. They're going to go do something else. Maybe the boy is still going to be sitting there like, no, I'm making the NBA. But like, that's not happening for women. Right. Um, right. And I think the more that sponsors and different people kind of look at our organization and not only for our team realize what we're doing, but maybe even just look at the organizations they're a part of and see like, hey, you know, are we spending money to like pay to have the name of this stadium that's only ever playing men's sports in there? Oh, okay. Like, how do I go do that for women's sports? You know, how do I make sure that my marketing dollars don't give me the whole, it's all about business, honey, because, you know, that's not how these things roll. Um, Like, make sure it's 50-50. Make sure for every dime you're putting into the NBA, NFL, NHL, all of those sports, you're doing that for women, you know? I love it. I love it. I'm wish you nothing but the best. Um, I'm really grateful that you spent a lot of time today, you know, sharing your story and the heart. I mean, I'm sorry that all that happened to you, but again, not that's a wrong place for a, but, but you wouldn't be doing the things you're doing. Yes. If it weren't, wasn't for that. Yeah. And I'm glad the emotional abuse didn't go any further. I'm glad for coach John and, um, I'm really glad for what I'm going to be watching closely to see this thing crush over the next few years. Um, So thank you so much for spending time with us today. This was super fun. Yeah, thank you. And I think I'm just going to leave it on one note, which is often, I think a lot of people hear this and they do kind of think like Mary's moved on. And I, 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 certain things will never move on from obviously, like I'm going to die, you know, fighting on this hill. And I love that. Um, But I'm also still out there running. Like I'm still figuring things out. I'm still trying to make sure that I'm giving myself the opportunity to be the best that I can be. And I say that purely because it kind of comes back to that idea of like, yeah, am I ever going to win the Olympics? I have no idea. But I'm not saying no yet. Yeah. I think I'll be 60 and still not saying no. And it, it doesn't, like the point is not whether or not I do. The happy ending is not whether or not I do. Like none of that actually matters. But I never want people to hear my story and think like, she walked away because the truth is like you're gonna see me out in central park you're gonna see me out in riverbank track you're gonna see me running with all these athletes and maybe that's not the storybook ending for me but like i don't really care i'm still gonna throw myself out there and roll around the ground and throw up after a workout and smile doing it yeah you know and so i i never want people to kind of think like that that you have to walk away and I sure as hell didn't. Well, maybe um, one of my, one of the things that I do for myself, for my self-care, as it were, is usually Sunday nights, getting ready for the work week. So after the kids are in bed, I come from our our apartment down here to my office, work for a little bit, get ready for the week, get in the zone, and then I walk from, from the bottom part of Central Park on the west side all the way up with a cigar yeah, and it's kind of like my hour and a half to like, and it's usually like at from 1130 till one in the morning. Like yeah. it's really late, but it's so good for me. Not that you'll be out running, but we might pass each other. You'll be running a lot faster than me and I'll be limping <laughs> along with a cigar, maybe running. I don't know. We didn't get to talk about, 
I didn't give you the chance to like sell me on running, but I do want to run. Like yeah. I've always looked at running. I'm I'm not even fucking kidding you. Like I have really bad asthma and I've not around runners. Like nobody in my family, there's some people that live healthy and work out, but like nobody's running. Yeah. And I've always wanted to. And I've tried. New York City is a place. I know. For you. Like I, I need I need to start just give it a shot at some point. Yes. Just like start with a mile and like go from there. And I think one really, really, really big misconception about running, and it's true for like a lot of sports, is again this like it has to be intense. You have to race, like it has to hurt. Like go as slow as yeah. you freaking want to for that first mile. And every time go as fast or as slow as you want. And yeah. you know what? If sometimes you're like, I want to feel the burn, go for it. If you want to walk. Like, I don't care if you w- run a minute, walk a minute. Like, yeah. go run. Like, there's no... You know who Al Roker is, right? Yes. Yeah. So he... I don't know if you follow him on social media. He's the best. I mean, he's just a joyful person. But he does the walk run yeah. like, in Central Park, like, every day. And he'll, it, like, share his thing about, like, I, I... And he's, like... He's way older than me. God love him. And he's out there, like, yes. running for a minute and a half, then walking for 30 seconds and running a minute. He yes. does it for, like, 70 minutes. Like, he does it for a long, long time. time. And that's part of the thing is that, like, I think we get... And and I think part of it is that like running can be very elitist, and part of it is because you know the like if you look at an endurance runner ad, most are like white men who are like slightly too skinny than they should be, looking really posed, yeah. right? And you're like, that's not a that's yeah. not a, everybody's a runner. I don't know anybody that looks like that. No, yeah, yeah I, I barely <laughs> do, and I'm a pro. Yeah, like, you know everybody can run, and I think everybody should run, but it your running doesn't have to look like my running. Just go out and. Find something that works. And I think the reason I say New York is the best place to be a runner is because, like, we have so many run crews that are about so much more than running. And I think that's really part of the reason I also felt like I could make this team. Like, we have black men run crew. We have black girl run crew. We have frontline runners, which is an LGBTQ crew. And, like, I can't even list all of the different mm. teams that are out there. We have Achilles runners. Like, they're, you know, people with disabilities who, like, show up every freaking Saturday morning at Engineer's Gate and are, like, ready to freaking roll. And I'm like, that's a runner to me. Yeah. And it it doesn't matter how you do it or where you do it or why you do it, when you could be doing it at that 11.30 p.m. <laughs> walk run. But I think whenever people are kind of like, oh, I don't run, I can't run, you know, I'm like, well, why does it have to be 13 miles? I don't want to do that every day. Yeah. Sometimes I'd rather just sprint around for a minute and with my dog and count that as a run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good word. That's a good word. You said you like your running doesn't look like my running. Mm-hmm. Just make it your own. Just make it your own. Just get out there and move. Yeah. And even if it's just like, I swear to God, there have been times where, especially like after some of my stress fractures, I tested it out by doing weird stuff, right? Like I'd just go down to a field and I'd be like, just going to kind of like do some, like zip around, yeah. you know, if you're in the playground with your kid and you're like, chase me, and you're yeah. just like running for dear life. Like yep. do whatever the hell you want to do with it. Um, but I just feel like anytime I hear somebody is like, Oh, I can't run. I'm like, you can't do what you think running is. That's totally legitimate. Yeah. So many different ways to do it. This was super fun. Thanks so much. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for having me. That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending time with Mary and me today. To learn more about Mary, just Google her name. She's really famous. And to learn more about her work at Atalanta NYC, visit atalantanyc.org. And of course, to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. 
A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm immensely grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode of the podcast. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. I mean that. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.